You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, this is our 50th TopCast show. 50 shows, number 50. I can't believe we got this far. Everybody at the TopCast staff is quite proud that we've, they've gotten to 50 shows. But tonight we've got a really special show on TopCast. Tonight on TopCast for our 50th show, we've got somebody that's a, a, an excellent pinball player, somebody that's won a great number of pinball tournaments, but he's also somebody that worked in the industry, working for Data East and Williams, uh, developing such games as Guns N' Roses, The Who's Tommy, uh, Royal Royal Rumble, and then he moved over to Williams and worked on Attack from Mars, Medieval Madness, Monster Bash, um, Safe Cracker, and Revenge from Mars, and now has recently started working again at Stern, uh, doing some games over there. Special guests, special guests, special guests, special guests. So tonight I'd like to welcome Lyman Sheets to our TopCast show tonight. Uh, again, Lyman worked for Data East and for Williams and now is back at Stern uh, doing programming and operating system development software there. Uh, Lyman is also an excellent pinball player, winning a great number of really big pinball tournaments. So we're going to give Lyman Sheets a call right now on TopCast. Lyman, it's Clay. Hi, Clay. How are you? Good. How are you? Is it okay? I'm good. Yeah, sure. Okay. How did you get into the whole pinball thing? I mean, what was your, you know, your first memory of pinball and how you got turned on to it? Yeah, um, I wasn't one of those guys who, you know, started playing pinball at age three. You know, I, I, I didn't pick it up until college. I actually, I, I played a lot of video games. I, I love video games. It's, um, Galaxian and uh, Robotron, Defender, all these great classic games uh, that that I played. And it wasn't until college, and, and I saw a couple of guys playing uh, Ape All Deluxe, and they're just you know absolutely killing the game, you know, playing and winning all kinds of credits and stuff, and playing and back and forth, and and just that uh, thought you know sort of appealed to me, like, hey, you know, they're like video games, you know. They're, there was skill in pinball, and, and uh, of course I wasn't very good at it, but uh, I, I got better over the years watching uh, other people play. Um, I mean, probably one, one of the first games I played outside of the 8-Ball Deluxe was uh, High Speed. I used to play at, at an arcade uh, in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, uh, Fun and Games. It's actually still there, although I haven't been in there for a while, uh, and uh, I'm... I'm well, although I'm in Chicago now, I, I uh, was born and, and grew up uh, around uh, Boston area. So, um, well, where'd you go to school? Uh, I went uh, to college uh, at uh, Northeastern University. Um, they had uh, I uh, majored in uh, computer science, which uh, they had a great uh, uh, CS program uh, back in the day. I'm not sure how it is now. I don't. I don't like kind of keep up on the school or whatever, but. Uh, it uh it uh, they had a, a great uh, bunch of uh professors who mostly all came over from the math department and so it was 
uh, a lot of introductory material, basic, you know, algorithms, data structures, so on and so forth, and programming, uh, Pascal, C, uh, Lisp and Fortran, and then uh, theory, uh, probably like three years of theory, uh, operating systems, compilers, artificial intelligence, uh, databases, things like that. So uh, it was, uh, um, college was like one of the best experiences of my life. I, I, not like I wasn't like this big college party dude or whatever, but uh, it, it was just a very uh, stress-free, relaxing time for me. It, it it's just a very fun environment, and anybody who has that opportunity uh, to go uh, to school and, and learn should definitely uh, take advantage of it. Yeah, it was my, uh, I mean, I don't even, when I was in school for, well, actually, I stretched it to five years, and man, I was wish I stretched it longer. I, I didn't even know who the president was. I mean, it was like, you know, you're just disconnected from reality. It was great. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think if I uh, could do absolutely anything I wanted to do in life, I'd probably just go back to school full-time for the rest of my life because there's... Uh, it's just, again, you know, it's just a very uh, uh, relaxing atmosphere and, and you get to learn. And to me, that that's one of the best things in life. Yeah. You never stop learning. So now, how did you make this connection between, you know, programming and pinball i mean was that just like a, a natural turn you know i never really uh, thought about the connection at all because uh, uh i i i guess that was sort of insulated as to uh, what options were available as far as what computer science people did um i didn't really get involved uh or even know about uh people programming games. I mean, I suppose it occurred to me at some point, like, hey, uh, somebody actually has to write code for these things uh, to, to work and be fun because uh, they have microprocessors in them. Uh, but, but to me, like, I guess uh, very naively, computers were mainframes and PCs because that's mostly what I dealt with in, in, in school and, and eventually at, at work when I worked, uh, I worked uh, for a couple of years at... Uh, uh, Draper Labs in Cambridge, uh, and uh, after I graduated, I, uh, I worked uh, for MITRE uh, in Bedford. Those names probably, eh, they may or may not mean anything to people, but um, they're mostly uh, sort of DOD-funded research firms. Um, that's probably a, a, a bad generalization, uh, but that's mostly, you know, they get their money from the government, and they do uh, research projects, and RFPs and things like that. Um, but uh, actually, when I was in school, uh, I used to play, again, I said it at Fun and Games in Framingham, uh, I played, uh, it was Black Knight 2000, I used to play a lot, and uh, some of my favorite games back then were uh, uh, Steve Ritchie games and Pat Lawler games. I mean, I played a lot of Earthshaker, uh, Bonsai Run, um, at Whirlwind, and then Steve's games, uh, High Speed, obviously, F14, uh, which uh, I guess, unlike most people, I actually enjoyed playing and liked it. Um, and uh, Black Knight 2000, uh, and one of my friends, uh, not at the time, but later became one of my friends, uh, Dallas Overturf, uh, he uh, used to go to that arcade, too, and uh, I used to you know, put in my initials on all the games, and 
he was curious because um, Dallas uh, is a, a former, uh, I guess, a great pinball player. Uh, he won uh, this uh, championship in uh, Connecticut in 1980 um, and had been to tournaments, pinball expo, and so on and so forth. Um, he talked to the the staff there at Fun and Games and, and asked them if they knew who um, LFS was. Those were the initials I used to put in on the game. And uh, they said, yeah, sure. And so he asked them to uh, give him a call when I showed up. And so uh, I guess one of the next times I showed up, uh, Alice came over to me and introduced himself. And we played... Uh, pinball for a couple hours and talked and and of course this was 1988 and I was in school uh, and he was trying to talk me into going out to uh pinball expo he said he said yeah you should you should go out to this thing you, you'd probably win it and uh, I told him I, I didn't have the time or the money or anything <laughs> uh but uh it was 2 years later and uh I graduated from school in 1990, and uh, one of my friends, uh, Mike Texera, uh, a good friend from uh, college, uh, we both were in the CS program, and uh, it was about uh, close to the fall of 1991, and uh, he and I used to play a lot of pinball uh, in college, and uh, he asked me if I wanted, just out of the blue, if I wanted to go out for a pinball expo. Um, 1991, I guess that was the year uh, uh, Party Zone was the tournament game. That's sort of how I remember expos, the year, and right. like what like what game was there. So um, I, I thought about it for just a couple of minutes, and uh, I thought, well, why not? You know, I'm, I'm employed. I, I, I have the time. I have the money to go, and, and why not? You know, why not just go out and see what it's all about. Now, I hadn't played pinball in probably about a year and a half because once I sort of got out of college, I, I didn't I didn't have a lot of time uh, with work and, and uh, a lot of the, the reading and whatever else I would do in my spare time. And uh, so I hadn't played in, in a long time. Um, and it's kind of hard to go back to play. Well, it's kind of like riding a bicycle, I guess. You know, you, 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 you're away from it for a long time and then, and then some of the more, uh, uh, you know, advanced skills take a while to, to, to refine over, over playing, you know, some number of times. And, uh, and, well, we went out to Chicago and I, I had a great time. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, I played in a tournament. Uh, I did not qualify. I played like, I think like 400, something million on party zone. Uh, my friend Dallas qualified last minute, qualified eight. This was back at Pinball Expo. It would take uh, eight qualifiers instead of 16 or A or B division or whatever they do now. Um, and uh, he finished second. Uh, he uh, finished second to Rick Stetta in the, in the finals that year. But uh, after I went, I, I, uh, I saw what everybody was doing as far as their skills and how they were getting scores on the games and whatever. And, and my thought was, hey, I used to be able to do this. <laughs> I just need a little bit more practice, and and, and I'll come out next year and, and see what happens. So um, after that, I, I started playing again, um, making time. 
to to practice and, and play. Of course, I didn't own any games, and uh, so I used to go out on location and play. Uh, there were a few good ones around. Fun and Games was okay. Uh, there was a bowling alley. It's gone now. Um, it's, it was uh, Metro West Lanes uh, run by uh, Bob Sundberg, who um, has... Uh, uh, well, he doesn't have it anymore, actually. I think his kids have it. Uh, Acton Bowl, um, anybody who's in and around Acton. Uh, there, uh, last time I was there, 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 there were some new games there, uh, new Sterns um, uh, there to play. So um, anybody who wants to go out there and, and check it out uh, should. It's over, like, kind of in the back uh, amidst some novelty games. But uh, uh, after that... Uh, I just mostly practiced and played and, and being able to uh, uh, find out about tournaments and go to tournaments. I, I uh, met a lot of people in the in the industry um, because they used to go to tournaments too, like IFPA. I, I met uh, Larry DeMar. Well, actually, my friend Dallas introduced me to, to Larry uh, at uh, Pinball Expo in, in 1991, and then um, I sort of saw him at... Uh, at IFPA, and we talked a little bit. Um, uh, uh, his game uh, and, and past game, Adam's family was there, and um, um, that ended up being the first game uh, I bought. Um, was Adam's family? It's an excellent game, very entertaining, great game. Did you buy it brand new? Yeah, back in the day, I sure did. Uh, I, uh, I, it was difficult for me with with my time constraints and and so on. Uh, trying to find good games that worked, uh, uh, it, it, it seemed to make sense to just, well, hey, if, if I'm going to take this seriously or be serious about it or even just uh, have some fun, which is what it used to be back in college, uh, uh, it, 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 I, I didn't see the harm in owning a game or two or three or whatever is now 20-something. So. so you got 20 games in your collection? Uh, yeah, roughly. Uh, some come, some go. I, I mean, it's just like it, it's mostly limited on space, uh, as everybody knows. I mean, it, it, it happens. You start collecting, and, and you know, one just isn't enough. And, and I think you know a lot of that has to do with just you know variety, and, and you know, one game, and how long can you play one game, or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, but I, realistically, I've been collecting for. Well, since 1992, so uh, about 15 years, a little more than that. Did you get good at at fixing games? You, you mentioned that there was a lot of games you played that, that were in disrepair, so are you pretty good at fixing your own stuff? Yeah, you know what? I, I learned that just out of uh, uh, interest and, and necessity. Uh, you know, something goes wrong with it. It's like, okay, <laughs> how do I fix this thing? Of course, now it's a lot easier because you want to figure something out. You just, like... Go on to internet and do a search and go, oh yeah, okay, I, I think I know how to do this. And back then it was a little harder. Like, not like you could go down to the library and figure out how to fix a pinball machine all that well. So, but I, there was, uh, Rec Games Pinball, which I don't read anymore today because it's just too, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, diluted? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, back in the day, I think there, there, and, and this is probably true of internet in general, and maybe I, just a big 
uh, well, I'll, I'll just say what I feel about it. I mean, back in the day, I think, uh, you know, there were more educated people using the Internet because you actually had to work somewhere or, or, or go to school or whatever uh, to some college to get access to it. It's not like, you know, every home user could, like, go buy a computer and sign up for AOL and get on Internet. Um, you know, you had to be uh, reasonably... Uh, uh, I don't know. I yeah, astute enough to be able to find a way on. Well, yeah, technically, uh, I guess technically, uh, uh, capable, I suppose, yes. And, and it wasn't of, of great interest to everybody because it was, I, I maybe still sort of in its, in its infancy. I mean, there were, there, uh, for me, there were mostly news groups and that was about it, mail and news groups. Right. Um, and uh, but within that community, it was great. I mean, I, I, I met I met a lot of people who I wouldn't ordinarily have met. Uh, and uh, uh, back in the day, I, you know, it was it was there were a lot of helpful people who who were really great. Um, today, it's 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 well, it's difficult because I just think you have, in general, uh, uh, more of a makeup of what society really is, and and you know. You get the good and you get the bad, and and so there you go. So now, how did you get over to actually programming machines? Now, I assume you you know you're talking about working on your own games. Did it ever occur to you, you know, before you got into the industry, that gee, maybe uh, you know it'd be nice if I could change this rule set or or change this programming or anything like that? Um, I didn't think so much about uh, uh, changing games. Um, other than say fixing bugs, uh, it, it's just kind of a thing where um, each game, if I like it, uh, it, it sort of you know stands on its own, and I, I don't think. I mean, I may think like, oh well, if I worked on this game, then I would have done something a little bit different, or so on and so forth. But um, as far as uh, changing the game, it's. Mm, I don't know. To me, uh, the game is the game. I mean, there's there's a lot going on right now of like, oh, you know, we're going to remake this or oh, we're going to remake that. And uh, to me, it's like the the interesting thing is is in the new games and what what new things people can do. Um, and also, I think you know a lot of the games that are worth remaking are are you know just fine on their own. You know, they can they can stand on their own and they've held up for you know, however many years, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I mostly, uh, was more, I mean, when I was thinking about getting into the industry, uh, you know, I, I was thinking more of, of just like game design as opposed to, uh, programming. I mean, programming for me was, uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was like, yeah, you know, it's programming. I mean, I sort of felt like anybody could do it. Um, it turns out that's as far from the truth as possible. Um, it just uh, requires a lot of thought and a lot of discipline and and a lot of long hours. There's no other way to say it. Right. But yeah, I, I uh, uh, when when I became interested in in getting into the industry, uh, I, I was uh, living in Virginia and. Uh, I had uh, won uh, the Papa Tournament in uh, 1993, and uh, Williams sent me out to Las Vegas to, um, like, kind of 
uh, do demonstrations on uh, their games there at the show. There, they had uh, Twilight Zone and Creature from the Black Lagoon and uh, Dracula there at the show. And so, wait, 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 was that when they taped that camera to like your head and you played their games? Well, you can. <laughs> what, what did they call it? I'm sorry, what? What did they call it? Oh, we called it Monkey Cam. Like, uh, Jim Green, uh, who I, I ended up, well, not working with, but he, he worked for, you know, mid, well, back in the day it was, it was just, uh, one company, but, uh, yeah, we, we jokingly called it Monkey Cam because it was just like, you know, you know, it's like, okay, let's watch the train monkey, you know, make this shot or that shot or whatever. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, 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 just a, a way to try to get uh, people uh, interested and excited about uh, uh, about pinball, you know, at a show. I mean, at a show you have a bunch of uh, it's a bunch of industry people and some operators and 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 some booth babes, and not a lot happens there. I mean, most people, you know, the hours are like like bankers hours for people who sleep in and uh and then you know at four o'clock or three o'clock or whatever everybody goes out and you know has a fat meal and parties and goes drinking and whatever else so so williams hired because you you won papa in in 1993 so because of that they hired you to do this yes to go out to las vegas and uh demonstrate on twilight zone yes now, when did you win your first turn? I mean, you know, you, you talked about entering in, in the expo tournaments and you didn't qualify when that one year when Dallas came in second. How, how was, long was it before you actually were winning tournaments? Um, it took a little while. Uh, expo uh, 91, where I didn't qualify, and then uh, uh, my friend Mike and I actually, uh, we won the doubles at uh, IFPA in 1992, but as far as myself, um, I was like Mr. Second Place because I would go to tournaments and then I would come close but not win and then come close and not win and get disappointed along the way because I felt that I was pretty good and that, you know, I could probably beat most people, but uh, it it took, uh, individually, it took about a year and a half to actually win a tournament, and the Papa Tournament '93 was the first tournament that that I had won, just on an individual basis. And I mean, to, in order, you know, so you went from not going to any tournaments to winning in, in sounds like under two years. How much, how much time did it take you to hone your skills to get to that level? Um, actually, not very much. I I had um, <laughs> people would like. People would probably be disgusted with, you know, if, if they knew how little time I spent playing and whatever. I mean, people think like, oh, these people who who uh, are really good at something, they spend their whole lives at it, and it's like, well, no, <laughs> um, this is just a fun thing for me, and and yes, I take it very serious, excuse me, seriously, but uh, at the same time, it's all in perspective. It's just a, a fun, entertaining thing that that I do. Um, and, but, uh, again, it's like, sort of like riding a bicycle. I mean, for me, I could drop it for months, uh, and then come back and pick it up and maybe in a period of, I don't know, two or three days feel like I'm, I'm back in it. So, um, 
back then it it probably wasn't all that different. I mean, back then I I was mm, I I might have been a better player back then than I am now. Uh, it, it's really hard to say, but um, there are really only a handful of skills that anybody needs to to really do well in a in a tournament or competitively. Now, how did you get over to your your first pinball job? I, I assume was with Daddy East. How did you get to you know? How did you get to that point? Oh sure. Uh, well, I was in Virginia, and uh, I had after uh, you know talking with Larry and Pat, and, and uh, spending time with with some of the people at Williams um, at that show uh, in uh, in Las Vegas. I I thought, wow, you know, it's like they, they talked about you know a little bit what work was like and what they did, and and it it's more than what they'd normally say, I suppose. Uh, to anybody, like to any enthusiast who just, uh, uh, you know, say it like a pinball expo or, or some other show like that, where somebody wouldn't necessarily just come up to them and ask, like, oh, well, so, you know, how was work today, or, or what'd you do, or this or that, where they just talked about it because, like, hey, we're at work, we're at a show, and here's our games, and so on and so forth, and, um, that's when it really occurred to me that, like, hey, these people do this for a living, and it sounds kind of fun. And I probably have a set of skills that would be um, useful. So uh, it was after that I I, I pursued uh, uh, you know trying to try to get a job in the industry. Uh, I, I sent the resume to Larry and Ed Williams and. Uh, also, uh, Lonnie Rop, who, um, at that show in Vegas, uh, I met, and actually we're on the same flight back to Red Eye, not Vegas. Every flight out of uh, Vegas is a Red Eye, but, uh, the, uh, the flight, we were on the same flight, uh, and we talked for a long time, uh, just, uh, uh, on the flight, just about, you know, pinball and games and stuff like that, and, uh, one of the things that was really, uh, great about the whole that whole experience was that it seemed like everybody I talked to really uh, enjoyed what they did, um, and to me it's really important. Um, a lot of people I think that you know, they kind of go through life and 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 they're like, yeah, I have this job and and it pays the bills and so on and so forth, and they find other things like outside of work or whatever uh, to to uh, entertain them or, or make them happy in their lives or whatever. Uh, and to me, I, I, it just hadn't occurred to me that, like, oh, wow, you know, you could actually do something for work that, that uh, you know, that, that's also your hobby. So um, I, uh, I sent resumes to Larry, and I sent a uh, resume to, to Lonnie uh, at uh, Data East. And, and how long was it before you heard back from these people? Uh, it was pretty immediate i think i mean within you know like a few days or a week uh um ted and larry uh did an interview uh with me over the phone uh and uh you mean ted estes right yes ted estes right uh he was uh i don't know if he was manager of the department at the time but uh he was uh you know basically worked very closely with larry on on twilight zone um which was Happened uh, just shortly before that, and 
And then uh, Joe uh, Camico from Data East actually uh, uh, flew me out to Chicago to interview, and uh, because I had only really talked with with, with Lonnie, I had spent you know a, a lot of time at, at, at the show with with the guys at Williams, and uh, so I, I had only really you know talked with Lonnie briefly at the show and and on the on the flight uh, back to Chicago. My stopover was in Chicago. Um, and so Joe uh, had me come out to uh, uh, to Chicago to just uh, mostly spend the weekend and talk with everybody and and all that. Um, so why did you take? Um, it, it, well, I mean, did did both companies offer you jobs or just Data East? Uh, Data East offered me a job. Uh, Williams did not offer me a job, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny actually later, but. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember uh, exactly what uh, uh, the the reason or whatever. Um, later, uh, Larry had explained to me that you know he wasn't sure uh, leaving an environment like uh, Miter, which yeah, everybody Miter is a great company to work for. Um, but I think the perception is is that it's not very intense and. People don't have deadlines, and people don't really work more than uh, nine to five and work forty hours a week. And uh, his concern, um, he told me later, was that that it would be, you know, kind of a shock to me to just be thrown into an environment where, uh, yeah, the deadlines were so tight and everybody was pushed. You have to sacrifice a lot in your life uh, to get things done. Um, and uh, it's not for everybody, that's for sure. So, um, but I wanted to work in pinball, so <laughs> I said, uh, "Sure, I'll go to work for Data East. I absolutely will." Um, and I and I packed up all my things and, and moved out to Chicago. Was it a pay increase for you? Uh, not not really. Uh, it was more like a. The lateral cost of living increase. Uh, it was, I mean, pretty much a, a lateral move. I, Virginia, I lived around Norfolk area, and Virginia worked on, uh, worked at uh, Langley Air Force Base, and uh, the cost of living there is just not all that high. Now, Chicago is there are a lot of people here, and it's not, well, it's not as bad as Boston, but uh, it's uh, it's expensive to live here. So, um, but no, uh, I, it's not like, uh, you know, they, they offered me more money uh, outside of, you know, what you'd expect from moving from, you know, basically like uh, uh, Norfolk to Chicago. So what was the first game and what was your first day like, for that matter, at Data East? Um, my first day, I mean, the first day at, at a new place is always, you know, it's always a lot of fun, um, especially, uh, you know, at at, uh, at a pinball company. I mean, some people were, were uh, you know, they saw me and they were, I don't I mean, I didn't know hardly anybody except Joe uh, Camico, uh, Neil Falkner, who I had met and talked with over that weekend, and uh, Lonnie, obviously, too. Uh, everybody else, I, I think they sort of knew who I was because they, like, saw... Maybe they'd see me at a tournament, play in a tournament, or they would know that, oh, yeah, you know, he won this or he won that, whatever. 
um, some people were surprised. They're like, you know, what's he doing here? <laughs> you know, like, oh, is he working here? And and I don't think people realize that. Uh, hey, uh, you know, I have a college degree, and and you know, I'm a programmer, and uh, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, coming in and just seeing everything, and and seeing uh, the factory was was. Uh, uh, a great thing to see. I mean, you walk in and 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 just games are being built all day long. And and this was back in the day when when nobody could get them out the door fast enough. Um, and uh, work. There were uh, several projects going on at a time. And uh, I mean, it was great. It was just like uh, it's so unlike. Uh, I guess corporate America where, you know, you kind of walk in and everything's quiet and everybody's wearing, you know, either suits or ties or, you know, nice pants and whatever. It's like everybody's wearing shorts and jeans. I moved out in the middle of the summer. Uh, and, uh, everything was just kind of relaxed and, uh, uh, very casual. Hmm. So. So what was the first product they put you on? Um, I was put on, uh, uh, Tommy was the first project I worked on. I was, uh, hired to do, uh, dot matrix display programming. Um, back in the day, uh, Dadies, uh, the, their system, um, was basically like, uh, basically like Williams System 11, uh, except it had a dot matrix display that communicated, uh, uh, with the CPU, um, and the two uh, operating systems were separate. There was an operating system for, like, uh, game code, what was considered to be game code, and then uh, there was operating system for uh, dot matrix display. Uh, I was hired to do dot matrix display programming, and the first project uh, I got put on was uh, was, was Tommy. Now, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny because, like, I talked about... Uh, you know, just things being like uh, uh, you have to make sacrifices and so on and so forth. Uh, when I started, I think we, we had to have uh, a bunch of games ready for uh, uh, the the people who did the, uh, the the Broadway musical Tommy in New York. They were going on sort of like a road tour around the U.S. Right. Uh, and, uh, their first stop was, uh, was in Dallas, and we had to have, like, I think it was, like, six games, or however many games, um, uh, ready for this premiere, <laughs> uh, and, and that happened, uh, we had, like, six weeks to just basically, like, throw a game together, uh, and, uh, and get it out there. When you say throw a game together, you mean from, like, a ground-up design, or the, or the thing was already designed? Right. Yeah, we we had we had uh, Joe had pursued the, Joe Chemical had pursued the the license and we we, we got the license and then uh, they wanted to to have games at the at the premiere and the premiere was like six weeks away and um, Joe's usually not a, a somebody who says no to something you know like that so he put us all you know on. Uh, Working uh, towards that goal, which we did manage to get, you know, six games down to Dallas for the for the for the premiere. They were actually there uh, a little bit uh, beforehand. But. Were were these six games like the quote prototypical uh, Tommies that were different than the actual production ones? Yes, that's correct. 
And, you know, why didn't they, uh, I mean, a lot of people, you know, rant and, and, and rave about the prototypical ones opposed to the production ones. Were they really that much different? Uh, they were pretty different. Uh, the prototype had, uh, six bumpers. Uh, well, the prototype, there, there's no way we could have built that game and made any money with it. I mean, there was just so much stuff in it. It's like there were six bumpers, there was, uh, uh, I think there was like a shaker motor in it. There was a chime unit too. That was the one thing that was, that was pretty cool about the game that, that, you know, I, I didn't like to see disappear, but, it disappeared anyway. Um, it, uh, I, the production game plays a lot better than, than the, the prototype. I mean, even if the prototype got out of that stage, uh, I, I would still say the same thing. The, 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 the prototype just, uh, is very crowded. Uh, it, 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 it just, uh, it didn't play all that well. I, did, I didn't think. I mean, again, even if it made it uh, beyond that stage, I still think that that what we ended up with the production version was uh, was much better. Now, so you're you had you done any 6809 assembly language programming prior to this experience? No. No, not at all. I um actually I spent the uh, couple weeks before moving out to Chicago just learning 6809 uh assembler. Uh, I had uh, taken uh, uh VAX 11780 uh, assembler in college. I actually took a full year of it as part of, um, you know, again what what I thought was a, was a great computer science program at uh, at Northeastern. I mean, we took uh, courses like calculus and physics and and uh, assembler, uh, computer architecture, um, a lot of stuff that I, I don't even know if they teach this stuff anymore. I mean, most most guys we interview out of college, they're like. You know, they've got like Java listed on their resumes, and I, I don't know. So, uh, but uh, languages are languages. I mean, to me, uh, anybody with uh, a degree in CS should be able to uh, pick up most any language. I mean, languages are just a way to solve problems. I mean, the real asset that that that. Uh, somebody has is their ability to solve problems. I mean, whether it's done in 6809 Assembler or SPIE or COBOL or uh, take your pick. Um, to right. me, it, it doesn't matter all that much. I mean, obviously, they're better fits for different types of, of problems that you're trying to solve, but uh, the assembler uh, assembly language scares a lot of people, and I, I just don't understand why, I guess. Um, it... it, it uh, it, it, it's actually a lot easier to learn than, than most people um, think, as long as they have a good understanding of, of computers and how they work and architecture and so on and so forth. So now you've got in the in the data east environment, you've got basically a System 11 board set that's running the 6809, and then you've got another computer, another I believe 6809 running the um, the 128 by 32 pixel display and these two have to handshake or you have to make calls from the one machine or from the one computer on the main board to the dot matrix computer it, which is kind of a different environment than how say Williams was doing it where they just had one 6809 was this you know programming in this way did this create any special challenges or, or anything well uh, first of all if given the choice uh, you know it's 
probably much preferable to have, uh, you know, one CPU do all of the work because a lot of, assuming it can handle all of the work, um, a lot of what we do as programmers of pinball machines is um, it doesn't take usually much to to program uh, just the basic uh, structure of a rule and so on and so forth. But what takes all the time is all of the choreography and all of the dot matrix work and all of the sound work and all of the light shows and so on and so forth. Um, if if everything's done on one processor, it's a lot easier to, uh, to synchronize all of that and just make it very tight so that, you know, when you're doing a display effect, on a particular frame, you're like, okay, there's this big explosion on this frame. So, you know, when you're just, we go to display that frame, it's like, okay, you know, let's make the sound call here and maybe we'll like, like hit a couple of flashers or so on and so forth. Um, when you're sending, you know, like commands over to a display to tell it to, um, uh, the way the, the data east system worked was you, you requested an effect and the effect might run for, a second or two seconds or five seconds or, or longer, and a lot of the thinking up didn't happen with with that fine resolution. Um, normally, it would be the display effect would run on on, on one end, and then the, the game CPU would try to figure out and time out like uh, when to do the light shows and when to do the sound calls and so on and so forth. Um, not to mention you might have, uh, you know, just a flaky communication channel sometimes, so things might get like a little out of sync or, or whatever. So when you did a call, like say that you, you know, you, you did a call to the dot matrix computer to run an animation, and the animation was, say it was three seconds long, did the, the main processor uh, wait until it received like a handshake back from the dot matrix to say, okay, I, I did the display, it's all done, keep going, or did you have to actually I- incorporate that timing on your end? Well, on my end, all I really did was just program effects, and so I would do, say, all of the rendering for a particular effect, you know, like draw a score and, you know, plot some text and play some animation or whatever, um, I didn't, uh, uh, I mean, all of what you're talking about was mostly handled by the, uh, by the operating system, which, uh, at the time was, you know, had already been written, and, and I didn't really have, uh, much, uh, um, need to, to go in and, 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 uh, and mess with, I guess. I mean, it was all sort of handled, for me as a programmer of effects, uh, for Tommy um, and other games later, it didn't really concern me much what the operating system was doing. I just sort of knew that, like, okay, here's this effect, and and here's uh, what it's going to do. You know, it's going to, uh, uh, you know, like a jackpot effect. Uh, it's going to, you know, play some bit of animation and show a score and so on and so forth. And so, uh, mostly, it was just programming uh, the artwork and uh, the text. Um, didn't really involve much else. So you would get the the artwork pixels from the artist, and then your job was basically to to actually sequence them and animate them. Sure. Okay. And what did you find this? Uh, I mean, was this like okay? This is like an entry level job to you, or at the time was this pretty challenging? 
Um, well, Lonnie had developed uh, an operating system that was uh, uh, for the dot matrix that was uh, basically a, a, it was a scripting language, um, and it made it very easy, I guess, for non-technical people to just like kind of come in and pick it up and, and, and program effects. Um, and uh, for me, I, I probably had, you know, a little bit more experience than, than what your um, average person might have coming into that type of job. But at the same time, everybody has to start somewhere. I mean, in pinball, people, eh, they get hired and, and I don't know, <laughs> everybody who hires them, they like to throw people into the fire and see what happens. Um, you know, it's kind of like sink or swim. You 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 uh, you do the best you can, and uh, after a while, I, I know what you're saying. After a while, uh, it does uh, get to be uh, a little tedious because um, you get the artwork from the artists, and after you you you've gone through like after I went through Tommy, uh, it becomes like uh, you get the artwork and you think about it in your head in a second, and you already know how you're going to program the effect. And and after that happens several times, what goes through my head is, uh, gee, you know, I've done this like a hundred times. Can't this thing just write itself? Because you still have to go through the process of, you know, typing the characters into the computer to make the effect do what you want it to do. But there's nothing... Uh, new or innovative or whatever about what it is you're doing. There's no, uh, uh, there's no learning process. At some point, the learning process stops, and, and you're just kind of like, well, okay, uh, you know, I've programmed an effect, you know, uh, and this is just like uh, 50 others that I've programmed. So, all right. Well, back to the. Um you know the work with uh, you know at at Data East as far as the you know the product the Tommy products. What was the deal with the Macy's Parade? Yeah, uh, we had uh, they had uh, I guess a, a float uh, in the parade, and uh, they had uh, they they had a couple Tommy games in the uh, in the parade, which uh, you know for me was exciting because um, well my family thought my job was. They always wondered when I was going to grow up, <laughs> even before I, like, get a job at pinball. And they never really liked about, you know, oh, he's he's doing pinball stuff. And they thought it was childish and, you know, like, when is he going to grow up or whatever. And then, uh, but, you know, it's like I can turn on the TV and, and point to a thing. It's like, hey, you know, I, I worked on that. and And then they get all excited because... It, it's something that's quantifiable to them. You know, it's not like right. working at, at MITRE and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a black box. Like, they don't know what I'm doing and they, they're never going to see uh, any any results of what I do from my work. But, you know, you look at it and you see it on TV and you're like, hey, you know, th- there it is. So, yeah, that was, that was, I mean, to me it was, it was, that was pretty exciting. Uh, and what was that Thanksgiving parade at, in New York? Yes. Okay, now what about, um, I heard that you also, through that Tommy experience, that you uh, you actually met Pete Townsend of The Who. Yeah, we uh, we were invited to Dallas 
for the premiere uh, of the uh, musical, and uh, uh, Pete Townsend was there uh, in the uh, audience. Actually, we went out a little earlier uh, in the day because we had uh, we had all these games at uh, at these different locations, uh, uh, these six Tommy games that we put out. And uh, we had to go out and service them. It was like myself and Eric Winston, who worked at uh, uh, at, uh, at Data East, and uh, I'm trying to remember who else um, uh, who went out to to help, like you know, clean up the games and so on and so forth. We had, we had six games all throughout Dallas, you know, on, on on free play, just you know, walk up to the to the games and play them anybody could uh somewhere in a couple of uh, music stores record stores uh, uh one was at the uh, hard rock cafe um i can't re- really remember where where most of the other ones were but uh we so we went out a little early that day and uh it was interesting because um we were cleaning up the games we collected over a hundred dollars in quarters out of these games that were on free play so I think like the natural tendency for people when they walk up to a game is like they put money in it first and then they look at the start button and maybe they don't realize that like, oh, well, you know, the start button was already blinking on free play. Let's just play it for free. So, um, yeah, we had all these orders um, that uh, the following morning we were in the hotel. It was like Joe, Camelco, Neil. I think uh, Lonnie, myself, uh, a bunch of people. Um, we paid for breakfast with all the quarters we took out of the game. But uh, uh, so we saw um, the, the musical Tommy, uh, and then later uh, there was uh, like sort of like a cast party at the Hard Rock Cafe. So uh, we were invited to that, and uh, that's where we uh, got to meet uh, Pete Townsend. Uh, actually, he uh, signed my. Uh, instruction card for my game which was pretty cool and and what's pete like is he okay yeah he was uh you know he was uh he was pretty cool you know lots of women around him uh and uh you know he looked like he was having a good time so he was uh he 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 told us that he thought um we did a great job with the game which uh made us all you know feel pretty good about you know what we were doing and, and where we were going with it um that ends up being important uh later i mean this is this was my first uh experience with uh, uh licensing and all that and and most of the games that 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 i played were seemed like they didn't have licenses uh associated with them i mean like high speed or earthshaker i mean they were themed games but not like uh you know not like movie licenses or or right. rock and roll licenses or anything like that. Just and and this was a whole other aspect to um, the pinball industry that that uh, um, that just I guess uh, you know for better or for worse I don't want to say had to be dealt with, but uh, it was it was something that that we all had to be aware of and all had to be uh, uh, very careful about because um, you know the people who we license. The, the material from their uh, a lot of them are very uh, protective of their material and they want to make sure that uh, you know somebody like uh, Data East Williams uh, uh, treat their uh, um, yeah, treats their license appropriately. Yeah. 
So now, what's, um, what was the next project you worked on after Tommy? Uh, after Tommy, I worked on a display for uh, WWF. And did you get to meet all those guys? Uh, no, actually. Um, no, I don't remember. Uh, no, we just, uh, there was nothing really involved with that. Um, I, I think it was a project that, that had existed for a little while around at Data East, and uh, it was sort of like, uh, more like I kind of got just, you know, sort of thrown on it than anything else. Um, you know, it's like, okay, here's this project that's going on, and, you know, Lyman just help out with, you know, do display and stuff. Um, Neil Falker did the... Uh, did the game programming on that. Um, I used to be a big wrestling fan back, you know, back uh, in the day, I guess, when I was in in uh, late wait, high wait, school. Wait, 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 wait. Did you think it was real or staged? No, I, you know, a little of both, I think. I mean, I think some stuff is real, and I think some stuff is, is totally fake. Like, when they when they screw up and they make a mistake and somebody really gets hurt, well, that part's real. <laughs> but most of the time, they try to make it fake. So right. um, it's entertainment. It's like anything else. It's it's what it's what you get out of it. Right. So. Right. But then you did Guns and Roses, another another uh, you know rock and roll themed game. Any any interesting stories with that? Yeah, that project was a lot of fun um, because. Uh, well, I mean, I I love Guns and Roses. They're just I, I mean I'm. I like rock and roll, so I, you know, Death Leopard, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, stuff like that, um, and, uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, uh, Lash was originally interested in, uh, having a Guns N' Roses game made, and, uh, he was friends with, uh, Marcus Rothkrantz, uh, who lived, uh, maybe still does, in, uh, Los Angeles, that's where Slash was living at the time, and uh, uh, I guess Marcus uh, told Slash, like, hey, you know, talk to these guys at Data East, these are the guys who you want, you know, to do your game, so we weren't looking to do a Guns N' Roses game, we were just sort of like, man, what are we going to do, uh, we weren't thinking about Guns N' Roses, and uh, so Marcus set this whole thing up and had uh, Slash come out. And, uh, it was, I think it was an eye-opening experience because I remember Joe, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway and then we can edit it out later if possible or if necessary. But I remember Joe, uh, you know, he, he, uh, when I heard about this and, and uh, I was asking him about it, he's like, he's like, nah, we're not going to do a Guns N' Roses game. But, you know, we'll have Flash out, we'll talk with him and see, you know, what his interest level is in pinball and so on and so forth. And But, you know, we're not going to do a Guns N' Roses game, probably not. And then Flash shows up, and the way it was, the the way that the Data East building was, was set up at, uh, at 1990, Janus, uh, you walked in uh, to the building, and then you actually had to walk through the factory to get back into engineering. Um, if you enter like any normal person would enter now, most people just like like went through the side door and trampled through my office to get into the building. But 
you know, the people who just show up and don't know where they're going. Like there's a main entrance and you go in the main entrance and you talk to the secretary and then she takes you through. You have to walk through the factory to get into engineering. So uh, the Slash, uh, you know, while he was being like whatever escorted through the factory, um, a lot of the factory people uh, recognized who he was. And, you know, they're like sort of stopping what they're doing and like, trying to get his autograph and stuff like that. And um, he ended up signing a bunch of stuff, which I thought was really nice. Um, at the, uh, you know, once everybody was, was uh, in the factory was, was done for the day, they, like, run out and get their uh, their uh, their stuff for him to sign. Um, and, and then uh, I think after talking with uh, Flash, I mean, certainly Joe and Neil and Lonnie and, Myself and other people there uh, spent uh, some time with him, go out to dinner and so on and so forth, um, and talk with him. His uh, interest was pretty high. He had a lot of good ideas um, as to, like, what should be in a, a Guns N' Roses game. And he was, he seemed extremely knowledgeable about pinball and, like, what was fun and what wasn't. Um, and, and after that day, um, it wasn't even a full day. It was, like... Maybe I think he came in around one or two in the afternoon. But uh, at the end of it, I remember after after he left, after Slash left, Joe said, "There's no way we're not doing the Guns and Roses game." <laughs> and, and I think uh, most of that came from uh, the reaction of, of people uh, in the factory who saw him and recognized him. It's like, hey, you know, a lot of people know uh, Slash, Guns and Roses, and 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 then I, I also think what sold everybody later was, uh, you know, the interest level and and the knowledge. Um, Flash really uh, did a lot of uh, came up with a lot of the ideas uh, in the game, and I think uh, the game as it was when it came out, it it earned pretty good money, and uh, we probably didn't make as many of them as we could um, at the time. It was certainly during a a downturn in the industry, but um, it was one of those uh, strong games uh, that you see, you know, uh, a good game will come out and, and it'll do a little bit better than, than others. Um, and uh, it, it ended up being a, a pretty good game. Yeah, it's considered, um, you know, amongst pinball people, is, you know, probably, you know, probably the best Data East game that was ever made, really. That's really encouraging because it was probably one of the most fun projects that, that we all worked on there because it was, uh, uh, everybody, uh, well, you work as hard on a project that sells like 15,000 as you do a, a project that sells, you know, 500. Um, and so what you can take from a project is uh, you hope to have a lot of fun along the way, even if the the market dictates that the end result isn't going to be so great, or if it dictates that it is going to be great. I, I mean, ideally, y you would get out of of it what you put into it, but that that isn't always the case. Now, how did Gary Stern feel about the Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, moniker for a game? I actually am not, I probably have no idea, because um, uh, Gary, uh, at the time, back then, um, 
he was sort of like uh he was sort of like the a, a business guy like uh, uh uh so it was Joe that was making all the calls is what you're saying yeah i mean i i thought uh, to me I, I never really saw gary all that much back when when i worked there i mean i saw joe every day multiple times a day usually um and uh and, and Gary, I often never saw. I mean, I might see him like once a week. He worked uh, eventually over in, in the in the other building uh, at uh, 2020, uh, where we are now. And uh, so I didn't see him all that often. When Joe left the company, Gary really really picked up a lot more day to day responsibility then. Oh sure, sure. I mean, Joe was the the, the driving force behind engineering. I mean, Joe was the person who just made pretty much everything happen there. And Joe and Gary, I mean, they're business partners. They're, they're two guys who started a business uh, together, mostly. Um, that, but Joe, uh, you know, Joe was sort of in control or whatever of, of engineering on a, on a day-to-day basis. So now, how was it working with Joe? I mean, did you, was, it, was it stressful because he was such a hard pusher, or was it fun? Um, it was a little of both. I, I, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have any fun there, because I did. Uh, Joe, um, was, he worked hard, and he, uh, you know, you gotta hand it to the guy, because he did some great stuff while he was there. I mean, you look at, there have been other more qualified people, in my opinion, who have tried and failed at pinball companies in general um and and joe found uh you know his uh he, he found a group of people who uh also worked hard for him and and did some 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 great things there i mean the the thing i think i take away most from from my experience at at data east and and trust me i'm very appreciative of uh the opportunity uh to have worked there i mean at the time there were a lot of headaches, and I felt like, uh, you know, we could have done more to improve our games and so on and so forth. But, uh, I mean, I think Joe had the right uh, perspective on it, which was, hey, you know, we make pinball machines. We employ a bunch of people who have fun with what they do. Uh, we make money at it. And... Uh, you know, we all get to enjoy our time with our with our friends and our family, and uh, I mean, I think that's that's what's important. I mean, he made a he made a, a great product in a great time, and uh, I mean, yeah, a lot of people would say, oh, you know, Data East and Number Two Pinball Company and whatever, but you look back at all the games they did, and some of them are pretty good games, and uh, I think you have to hand it to the both. Joe and Gary, and the fact that Gary is still running a, a successful business. Now, you know, I think that business is probably as only as, as good as the the people who are doing the work, but, uh, you know, you, you definitely need people to just like, keep a lid on, on the cost because us as designers, you know, we'll, 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 we'll bankrupt any company as, as soon as we can because we just want full stuff in our games. You need somebody else who who fights uh, the other way, you know, who's saying, hey, you know, you can't have all this stuff because if you do, then we're not going to make any money and then uh, everybody will just have to go home.
So, well, you know, some of the criticisms of Joe was that, you know, he he'd see something on a Williams game, you know, a, a competitor's game, I should say, and he thought that was cool, and he would come in with a, you know, a drawing on a paper napkin and say, basically, you know. I saw this feature on a Williams game, make it so in our game. I mean, was this, uh, you know, a creative handicap for you guys? Um, I wouldn't call it a handicap so much as uh, I would say that, you know, Joe recognized uh, things that he felt uh, that people liked. And he wanted to incorporate those things into his games. Um, there's been, uh, I guess, a number of different uh, instances where, uh, you know, I've done the same thing. I mean, it, it uh, uh, it's kind of a fine line between, I, I mean, pinball, we, we always joke when we work now in pinball that, that like, there's some number of, of, you know, things you can do with, like, say, a set of drop targets or, uh, you know, a, a ramp or a spinner or whatever. And, and you know, they've all mostly been done. Um, you know, they're just a, a bunch of rules that, that people try and you try and be new and different and innovative. Um, I guess maybe some amount of frustration on my part at the time, because I was young and naive, obviously. I, you know, come in and I want to change the world. Um, and, and really it was more of an experience of like learning how the world works. Um, and, uh, but, but, um, I think that, uh, you know, we certainly had our chance to do, uh, to come up with our own ideas and our own, uh, things, um, while we were there. I mean, I, I don't think there was a case where, where somebody would come up with a really good idea and then it would be, you know, shot down. Um, you know, there was always an opportunity uh, to do, uh, you know, to do great things there. So, but I mean, as far as Joe, I mean, there probably uh, isn't anyone who would argue against uh, just the fact that uh, Joe recognized uh, uh, the value of the license, and he sort of knew what people liked based on. Uh, games that have been done in the past, and you put those two things together, um, uh, you know, you get games like Lethal Weapon 3, and you get games like uh, Star Wars and Jurassic Park, where uh, Data East sold a lot of those games, and uh, looking back on them, and I don't know, uh, I had fun playing those games. Now, back to the Guns N' Roses thing, um did you like, uh, you know, have any other, uh, meetings with, with Slash or any of the other? I mean, did Axel Rose put any input into this? Or was this all just Slash? Yeah, we didn't, it was all Slash. Um, uh, Slash came in several times actually to Chicago. Um, the first time I was really annoyed. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, just like, uh, it just made me upset at the time. I, I have a very, 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 short fuse and I have a, a bad temper at times but uh, the Slash uh, we were in this uh, conference room upstairs we have our meetings up there and uh, Slash wanted some Jack Daniels and uh, and so Joe 
you know, it's like, Lyman, go get some jack. <laughs> I'm like, come on, what are you talking about? You know, so, like, I had to go to the liquor store and get Jack Daniels. So, uh, I would, uh, in the morning, I would get coffee. I'd go to Dunkin' Donuts and, and get coffee. And uh, so I had, like, this, I get the biggest cup of coffee I could get. I, I can't even remember the size or whatever, but, um, and then I used to carry the coffee cup around with me for the rest of the day, the styrofoam Dunkin' Donuts cup, and, and throw it away at the end of the day. Uh, so anyway, I, I have to go out and I have to get Jack Daniels, and so I go and I buy Jack Daniels, and uh, I bring it back, and uh, I poured about half the bottle into my cup and started drinking out of the cup, just because it's like, hey, you know, if you're going to... If you're going to send me out to buy Jack Daniels, I'm going to have some of it. Um, but uh, he, uh, we had Flash out for, he came out, I, I don't remember how many times, but, but he came out uh, a number of times and uh, talked about, you know, the game. Not just things on the play field, but the insight he provided, I, we didn't know much about the rest of the band. I mean, Flash came in and we talked to him, and we learned about Flash by talking to Flash. Well, we didn't know much about the rest of the band. Um, and uh, Flash just sort of uh, helped us out there, you know, uh, um, with, with some of the things that we could do in the game, like, uh, you know, Gilby and, and motorcycles and things like that. And, um, you know, to try and help theme, like, band members to features in the game. And, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, we, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, we went out to uh, uh, to Orange County for the trade show, the AMOA show. They have two shows uh, every year. Uh, one used to be uh, Acme, which is now uh, ASI, and that's in the spring. And then uh, AMOA is in the fall. Uh, the... Uh, the show in 93, um, in the fall, uh, AMOA, uh, we were in Orange County, and so uh, Flash lives out in L.A., and so he came by uh, the booth. We had uh, uh, Last Action here on Tales from the Crypt uh, in the booth. Um, and so uh, uh, Saturday, uh, we went, uh, we actually, uh, uh, Flash, uh, I guess either was given or, or purchased uh, sales from the crypt. So like Dino, um, who lives out in that area, um, set it up in his house. So uh, Flash um, had us over uh, to his place. He had like a, a bunch of pinball machines in his house. Uh, he had 18 games just all throughout his house. And it's like, wow, this guy, you know, this guy's pretty into it. Um, and uh, um, we, uh, he took us out to... Uh, uh, he took us out to the Viper Room, um, which is um, uh, Johnny Depp's club, um, and uh, we uh, we got to meet uh, we got to meet Johnny Depp. Um, I was probably the only person there who wasn't wearing black. I mean, I had like these washed-out jeans and a and a white jacket, and like felt pretty out of place. But uh, uh, Flash played there; it was pretty cool. It was really the first time I had ever seen him play live, and. Uh, you know, it was great. What do you mean, the whole band played, or just kind of like Slash Impromptu or something? No, Slash, and uh, I'm trying to remember who else from the band was there. 
there were a couple other guys uh, from the band who played too. But just yeah, it. Uh, I mean, I didn't even realize that that that, that kind of thing happened. You know, it's like, oh, you want to see Guns N' Roses, you, you go to a show, you know, they, like, go on tour and whatever, and then, you know, here's Slash, he goes to the Viper Room and plays, you know, just, yeah, I mean, if you want to say impromptu, I guess, but, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, you know, that was pretty cool. Hmm. So, actually, uh, the, uh, I guess it was, like, the following week, week uh, River, it was when River Phoenix died there. Right. Right. So then, after Guns N' Roses basically doubled the size of the dot matrix, and you had some involvement in that? Yeah, the um, uh, the thought process behind it, and I didn't buy into it all that much just because, I don't know, I think if you're going to make uh, technological advancements, they need to be... Uh, I don't know, I guess a little bit more significant than going from, uh, you know, 128 by 32 to this one was 192 by 64. Right, I'm, uh, so, I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, the display on uh, on Maverick and uh, Frankenstein, um, I guess uh, it was on four games. Is that right? I don't yeah, Bay, let's see, Baywatch, Frankenstein, Maverick, and there was one other one. Yeah, there was there was Maverick. Uh, Frankenstein, uh, Batman Forever. Right, and Baywatch. And, and Baywatch, right, sure. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I was sort of tasked to do the operating system for that, uh, uh, display. Um, it's, uh, let me think, like three times as much data, I guess. So, um, realistically, you need Three times the uh, throughput, uh, uh, whatever you want to say, um, uh, to be able to do, uh, you know, be apples for apples as far as uh, frame rate and so on. Um, and uh, Bob Kowalski at CES, who did uh, uh, pretty much all of the hardware for Data East up to that point, he designed the controller board for it. It was basically the same uh, sort of interface type. Uh, uh, with the ribbon cable to the CPU uh, communication, um, and uh, but it was a 68,000 processor, right. uh, which uh, you know the the 09 was like a two megahertz 09. I can't remember what the what the what the clock was on the 68,000, but um, it's a lot nicer instruction set, uh, certainly, and. Uh, uh, that project, um, I want to say I had maybe like three months to do the whole thing. I mean, it just all happened so fast. I mean, after Guns N' Roses, I didn't really do a lot of display programming on Guns N' Roses. I did a handful of effects and, and programmed the, the, the Gilby Rolls video mode. Um, and then after that, I was uh, uh, put on Maverick uh, to work with... Uh, Lonnie on that to do display, and then the display was supposed to be this, you know, big display. I mean, to me, it, it was a nice experiment. We we talked about it later as like the, you know, the million dollar experiment because that's about like how much it costs and how much extra the display costs and how much money was just like basically, you know, burned through to see this thing, you know, try and fail. Um, 
So, uh, it, uh, well, I mean, I, 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 I wrote the, the operating system for it. It was, uh, similar to the, the operating system that was written, uh, the, the scripting language that, uh, that, uh, that, that Lonnie did for the, uh, the old display. I mean, it was pretty much, as far as scripting goes, identical, uh, and, uh, um, I don't know. It looked pretty cool. Uh, it was a nice big display. Uh, it was uh, nice to have uh, diagnostics. Uh, you do like some neat things with diagnostics, you know, like draw circuits and stuff like that. And, and, and uh, but uh, ultimately, uh, it just ended up costing too much. And and when the industry is is in sort of a downtrend and. Eh, you're looking to save costs. I mean, putting extra money into a into a big dot matrix display probably isn't the way to go. I mean, we always say at work. I mean, most people just don't even really look at it all that much. They look up every once in a while, and, and right. Right. most of the people uh, are just watching it. Their eyes on the ball. Their eye isn't on the display. And the display is mostly for people uh, who uh, uh, you know who are, are standing around watching, but. Um, you know, our audits say that, that 80% of all games that are played are single-player games. So, I mean, how many people are really watching? So, hmm. but, uh, but uh, it, was a, it was an interesting project. I mean, I certainly was grateful for the experience because, uh, uh, I mean, being able to, like, go from, to, to come in to just be a, um, you know, a display programmer to actually, like, be trusted to, to write a, an operating system was... Um, was uh yeah pretty pretty good well now on the um on the one thirty or on the one twenty eight by thirty two display there was only like three different levels of intensity on the one ninety two by sixty four display did you get a lot more levels of dot intensities with that too no there were still just three levels there there were just three times as many pixels. Now, was that, was the number of levels dictated by the display itself or just by, you know, your programming? Um, actually, in that case, because uh, the way the hardware was set up, I didn't really have control over, uh, like, uh, clocking out the, the, the pixel data. All, all I did was uh, write to some buffers, and there were, there were two buffers. Basically, it was, uh, imp- they were implemented as, uh, as bit planes. So basically, there are two planes for four colors. You want to count black. I count black as a color. Some people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, um, you know, you have you have four colors, um, and it was all controlled by the uh, by the hardware. So when, like, on the newer Stern display now, where they have more, uh, where they have more colors as a, or intensity levels, you mean the hardware actually? It wasn't a programming change. It was a hardware and a programming change. Well, originally. Um, for the Stern system, uh, we had talked about, again, Bob Kowalski at CES, who designed the hardware. Um, we had talked about that, that I would actually do, like, clock all of the pixel data. <laughs> Did you have involvement with, uh, with the Richie Rich project? Actually, no. I'm not really sure why people associate me with that project. Um, my only guess is that um, because I think Richie Rich, um, Brian Rudolph did the uh, did the code for Richie Rich, um, and I don't think I did anything. I mean, I might have 
done a couple of display things um, with Richie Rich. Um, the, the one I was more associated with, I suppose, was Kabuki, which was a, a kind of a custom game that uh, Joe uh, was uh, putting together. Uh, I can't even remember who uh, who it was for. It was uh, for some Japanese gentlemen. Um, and uh, but no, I'm not sure why my name comes up with uh, Richie Rich. I mean, that game was mostly just a, a, a movie prop, um, and it didn't really have to do anything. Uh, it just sort of sat there, and you know, it's like, oh, okay, here's Richie Rich. He's so rich, he has his own pinball machine. Um, that's also Richie Rich. So uh, it, 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 I don't think. Uh, I mean, I never saw that movie. I don't know what. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the game does in the movie or whatever, but uh, I, I, I didn't have really anything to do with that, except maybe I, I stubbed in a couple of display effects or whatever. Okay, so now at this period, you left ADEs and went to Williams. What was the reasoning for that and the, you know, the, the cultural transition between the, 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 two, the two companies? Sure. Um, well, I was at Data East and... and we touched on a little bit before, I really wanted to do game programming. I wanted to move beyond doing dot matrix display scripting, which, um, I mean, this work all has to get done. So, you know, if there's work to be done, the people there will do it. But uh, for me, in terms of being challenged, I, I wanted to move beyond that. I felt it was like, okay, you know, this was a, a good uh, thing to do, uh, get familiar with the dot matrix system, uh, do a few games uh, using it, write uh, a new system uh, for a large display, and uh, I wanted to do game programming, but th- there really wasn't a, a, a position for a game programmer, I guess. Um, uh, Lonnie and uh, Neil were the game programmers at Stern and... Uh, uh, Kevin Martin, who was hired, uh, I think Kevin was mostly hired to do game programming, uh, uh, pinball game programming, um, and eventually was put onto a video project, um, Tattoo Assassins. Uh, when I talked to Joe about doing game programming or whatever, it just uh, it just never really came up. I mean, it just seemed like I was going to be doing display programming. Well. I was young, but, you know, I thought forever. <laughs> so uh, I talked to, uh, with Ted, uh, I, I called Ted at, at Williams, and uh, uh, he interviewed me um, <clears throat> for the second time and uh, uh, offered me a job. Um, I think uh, uh, part of that was... Uh, the fact that I had, you know, worked for a pinball company for a year, and uh, I think everybody in the industry knows uh, kind of, you know, who does what, and, and w- people are involved in certain projects and so on and so forth. So, um, I, I suppose, you know, people there were a little bit more comfortable about, uh, you know, hiring me just based on the fact that I had you know, picked up and, and, and moved out to Chicago and I had worked on a lot of things and, 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 and you know, basically sort of 
proven to everybody that that I could I could do the work. Um, yeah, but right now is like a kind of you know we're talking what this is nineteen ninety four nineteen ninety five. The industry's kind of in a in a kind of in a slight downturn. Did that make the transition easier or harder or more difficult or anything like that? It was kind of hard because well at the same time I was you know also pursuing job uh, back in in Virginia. Um, and had uh, received an offer uh, from Miter. Talking with Ted, and, and, and he offered uh, he offered me a job at Williams, and I was sort of at a crossroads. I, I there was there was one way for my life to go, which was go back to Virginia and work for Miter again, get married, and have you know whatever like a nice <laughs> I want to say boring life, but. Uh, uh, you know, just sort of be back into uh, what I consider complacency to some extent, or uh, go to work for Williams and give pinball one more chance because uh, it really was something that I enjoyed a lot, and I felt like, okay, uh, people always say the, the grass isn't always greener, but, um, you know, experiencing things in life is, is, is a great thing, and... Uh, uh, I decided that uh, I wanted to give it one more chance, but at that time uh, I uh, I couldn't accept Ted's offer because I was it was probably a little bit earlier than than I wanted to to talk to him, but I, I needed to get a feel for whether that was going to be an option because um, if it wasn't, then I sort of wanted to uh, make my decision about going back to. Uh, the miter, um, because they had, I had already talked to, uh, to them and they were sort of waiting for an answer for me. Um, but when, uh, Ted, uh, said that, you know, when Ted, uh, gave me an offer, um, and I turned him down, <laughs> I think he was a little upset because it's like, well, you know, why do you ask me, you know, to, to, to talk to me about a job and then you say no? <laughs> But he didn't understand all of all of what was going on uh, with me. So, so maybe if he listens to this, he will now. But uh, uh, so I I stuck around uh, Data East for a little while longer, just because I had you know put a lot of time and effort into uh, into some projects, and I wanted to you know uh, uh, realize uh, you know some some. You know, some more time at the company, and uh, um, I think it was uh, right around. It was shortly before Christmas. Uh, I know there was a big uh, there was a big meeting in engineering, and, and things were kind of ugly at Data East at the time. I mean, I think people were getting frustrated from you know just a year earlier selling. Uh, a large number of games, you know, like over 9,000 Jurassic Parks, um, to then being faced with only being able to sell like 3,000 of a model. I mean, I know we went from, from I think it was like 9,008 of Jurassic Park to 5,500 of Last Action Hero to uh, 4,500 of Crypt. And I mean, you, you kind of get the, the the trend here. So, 
Yeah, and, and Data East had kind of a interesting compensation policy too. I mean, like everybody got a piece of the pie. I mean, everybody from like you know the secretary to the guy turning screws on the line or something like that. Sure, uh, I think pretty much all of the uh, uh, you know the the, the staff, yes, you consider staff um, would uh, yeah, there there'd be you know one big pie, and then it would get divided up as as you know, whomever felt uh, it should be so divided up. Um, it, it was often very discretionary. I mean, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but, um, you know, there were some things where, again, like I said earlier, this this rings true with, with this also, is that you always hope that, that the effort that, that goes into something, you know, is, is rewarded appropriately and, and, in a lot of cases, that just doesn't work in pinball. I mean, you know, there have been times when I've made very little effort on something and have been, uh, you know, rewarded uh, in ways that I, I never thought would happen. And there have been other times when I've put a lot of time and a lot of effort into something and then just, you know, there's like not much to come of it. And, and uh, so, I, I mean, at, 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 at the time... You go through a, a, a whatever a, a downtrend or a transitional period or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, people were getting grumpy because you know they're they're used to like, hey, you know, uh, my bonus was this or my royalty was that or whatever, and they all start you know to complain a little bit or or, or whatever, and it's just a function of of how the market is. I mean, we don't have any control over it. I mean, I personally feel that. That I mean, at least with Guns and Roses and some other games that that you know we were doing games that were you know some of the the, the best games that had been done at the company, and you know to see them sell uh, the way they did is certainly depressing uh, to say the least. But uh, but yeah, I remember uh, there was a, a meeting in engineering. Uh, I don't know, pretty much after the meeting, I felt like, well, okay, you know, um, here's how things are, and I'm not going to be able to do uh, game programming, and, you know, uh, uh, that's going to be that. So I called, uh, called Ted, uh, went out to lunch, and I called Ted, and I asked him if the, the offer was still on the table, and he said yes, and so I accepted, and, and I gave my notice, and... and uh, you know, I, I never want to, uh, uh, you know, I guess uh, screw anybody over uh, uh, at all, ever, um, especially at, at, at uh, uh, you know, some, at, at a company I work for and, and some people, you know, who I enjoyed working with and certainly, uh, as I've said, um, I'm very thankful, you know, for that opportunity and, you know, I, I had some great times at Data East. It was it was a lot of fun. I mean, when when you're when you're caught in the in the heat of battle and you're trying to, you know, get a game done, it's 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 often very easy to to let your emotions um, uh, take over, and uh, and and the least little thing or annoyance or whatever becomes this 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 monstrous problem. Uh, but uh, after a number of years that go by, begin to put it into perspective, and you know, we all had a lot of fun. 
All right, we're going to take a little break from our interview with Lyman Sheets, and we'll be right back after these messages. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking, and something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. Presenting classic playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality. Doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic Playfield Reproductions. Playfields. Back glasses. Plastic sets. On the web at classicplayfields.com. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. Okay, we're back with Lyman Sheets of Data East and Williams, uh, telling us some more about his pinball stories. When you went over to Williams and started working with Ted Estes, what was your your first experience there? Yeah, Williams, uh, I was a little scared about going to Williams, actually, because I felt like... Um, I mean, these were people who designed games, and and I had played through. Uh, I had played uh, while I was in college, and I felt like, you know, that maybe I was going to be a, a small fish in a big pond. And uh, uh, but I was excited too because um, I felt like, hey, you know, this is my opportunity. <laughs> this is my last chance to really, you know. Do do what I came here to do, which was program games. And uh, I remember uh, when I uh, when I got to Williams. Um, well, first of all, like I I I went totally the wrong way to get there. So like <laughs> from based on where I lived, I should have taken I ninety and gotten off at Addison, like I'm going to a Cubs game or whatever. But instead, I went for whatever reason. I went Interstate two ninety and like, got off in California and then hit a dead end at some rock quarry or something because, like, I was just, I don't know, way out of the way of where I should have been. But uh, I, I did manage to get there, and uh, uh, I remember that, that one of the first people I, I ran into there was Steve Ritchie. And, I mean, I figured I'd just sort of show up and, I, I, I you know, like, uh, talk with... Uh, you know, uh, Larry and other uh, programmers, uh, I didn't really know too many people there. I mean, I knew uh, sort of Pat and, and Larry and Steve and, of course, Ted from shows and things like that. But uh, Steve was one of the guys who, did, I mean, he just sort of came out and he's like, he's like, you're really here. And I, I, it seemed weird to me because, I, you know, whatever. I mean, Steve's just a kind of an open, fun person and, you know, he was like calling me a spy. He's like, "You're here to spy, aren't you?" You know, and um, he he just made me feel kind of comfortable there. Um, and uh, for the first couple weeks, uh, I um, I shared an office with Larry. So uh, it uh, uh, he had uh, Jackbot in his in his office. Um, he was uh, working on that project with uh, Louis Koziars, uh, who had started just a couple of weeks. I did, and uh, so, you know, it's a little nerve-wracking to, you know, like, start, and uh, I don't know, I just, like, was sort of playing around with Jackbot and 
getting to do different things, and Larry was like kind of showing me, you know, like, oh, here's this and here's that and so on and so forth. And I was very excited to be able to, um, you know, look at some of the, the, the code for the games that, you know, I had played over the years because it's always like, wow, you know, uh, you know, how did they do this or how did they do that or so on and so forth because all I had ever really done was display programming. So it was kind of a, uh, not a big learning curve, but eh, it's a lot to go through. Um, I mean, it's not like, any of, of the, it's not like any of the stuff is all that difficult. It's just, uh, there's just a lot of it. There's, there's a lot of it. So now, what, tell me about the, uh, the Demo Man, uh, Demo Man project. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, when I started, again, I was like, I, I, they had no space for me, so I was in Larry's office for about two weeks and then, I, uh, I, I managed to get a, a cubicle, um, uh, and, uh, Ted, uh, had finished with, uh, actually I guess he had mostly finished with Roadshow. The demo man was, uh, a little bit before that, but, uh, Lewis had this demolition man. Lewis was supposed to do this work, I guess, originally. Uh, he had a demolition man in his cubicle, and then the Jackbot project started up pretty quickly and Lewis got tossed on that and so um, uh, there were there was a whole bunch of uh, custom speech uh, for a demolition man that that Ted wanted uh, into the game and some of it was um, stuff for like uh, Sylvester Stallone and uh, Sandra Bullock and Wesley Snipes um, you mean these people were getting custom games or something uh, as far as I know yeah um, and then um, there was some other stuff for, uh, uh, you know, specific for Dennis and Ted and so on and so forth. Um, so anyway, uh, Ted, you know, one of the things that y- you want to bring somebody up to speed on, on, on you know, writing uh, uh, code for pinball machines, uh, one of the nice things to do or easy things to do or whatever is like, okay, here's this game that already does stuff. You know, make it do something a little bit different. So, um, when, when, uh, he, he uh, moved the demolition man into, into my cubicle and, you know, I went to go and, and put all these, uh, these sound calls in. Uh, so I, uh, actually, <laughs> I like, I don't know, I guess I'm good at starting fires at, at Williams because the demolition man came in. Of course, I got it from Lewis. And then uh, it had the old uh, the old uh, EPROMs in it, and so I needed to uh, put the new EPROMs in it with all of the uh, the, uh, the speech, the custom speech, and so on and so forth. So I take the old ones out, and I put the new ones in. And, of course, I didn't think to look. Like, I should always look at the board and see which way the notch is pointing on the board. Uh, but the uh, the original ROMs were plugged in backwards, so when I plugged in the new ROMs, I, you know, I didn't think. I'm like, oh, nobody would plug in a ROM backwards. And so, like, all of these sound ROMs were in backwards, and, you know, I, like, go to, you know, uh, load up the code and do whatever, and it just sort of sits there, and uh, I was, like, at a loss to know what was going on. So, I, like, look at the debugger and, and try and bring things up in the debugger, and the next thing I, I, I knew, I, I blew a, a, a cap off the, off the board, just shot this, uh, it just shot the little, little plastic cover right across my cubicle, and, out this nasty gray smoke and 
made a big stink. It wouldn't have been so bad if I if I had an office, but I was in a cubicle and it like yeah. stunk up the whole floor. Yeah, everybody smelled it. Yeah, just about. Yeah, people would walk by and they'd sort of stop by my cube and they'd like, you know, rubberneck over the top of my cube and sniff a little bit and ask me if I blew a cap and be like, yeah, sorry, <laughs> but so. Uh, yeah, so Demolition Man was, uh, was sort of my first introduction to, uh, Larry's, uh, the Larry system. And, uh, I, I had fun working on it. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of weird, like, you'd never see this in, in corporate America either, where, you know, I'm like typing little commands through the debugger and it's making sound calls and, you know, they're all like, like cursing and swearing and stuff like that, so. So these custom, you were basically, you did the swear ROMs then for Demo Man is what you're alluding to. Right, sure. Okay. And and this was well after Demo Man was already released and sold, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, right, when I got there, right, Ted had just finished uh, uh, with Roadshow. Ted did display... Uh, uh, programming on Roadshow, so that was so so the whole purpose of this, right? Demo Man was uh, spring of '94. So the whole purpose of this exercise was a to break you in and b to get uh, some custom ROMs out to the celebrities that were involved in the Demo Man project. Sure. And did you ever hear back from the people that you did the you know did the ROMs for? No, no. I mean. Um, Actually, this is, I suppose, where um, uh, things were a little bit different about uh, Williams and Data East. Um, Data East, we, we we got to meet a lot of the people involved with the with the uh, with the licensing. You know, we got to meet um, you know all kinds of people. Uh, uh, you know, who were involved with the, with the projects that that we worked on. And, and Williams, it was like all sort of handled like. I think Roger Sharp handled most of that um, up in the front office, so we never even really saw, you know, uh, people, or, or at least I didn't, um, you know, people who, who uh, uh, you know, were involved with the, with the projects that, that we licensed. So. Yeah, so Roger did all the work and basically insulated you guys. Yeah, which I think is, is a good thing. I mean, to me it's like, Hey, you know, if you want to get the most out of somebody and, and, and their work, it's like give them a, a comfortable work environment and you know insulate them from from distractions and 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 day to day BS and let them you know do their work and concentrate and have fun. That's how you're going to get uh, good people to do great work. All right, now what was the deal with the fire in Steve's hallway? Yeah, I set uh, I set fire. To, uh, to Steve Ritchie's hallway because uh, well, I used to smoke. So when I worked at Williams when I started, I, I smoked and, and I used to uh, you know I, I didn't like to, to smoke in the in the in the cubicle because there were people around me. So I'd like he smoked too. So I go down to his office and, and I but I didn't like to go into his office and smoke because then like you couldn't breathe in there. You get like two people smoking in one office. And, uh, so I used to go in the hall, and he had a little ashtray in the hall, and, uh, so I like to smoke, and I put the cigarette out, and, um, it, uh, like, I guess I didn't put it out all the way, and so it, it just 
sort of caught fire to all everything else that was in the ashtray and then smoked this whole hall and then like another hallway too. So, um, yeah, I mean, within a period of like a week or two, I had like uh, smoked up the engineering department twice. So it didn't seem like it was a very good start at Williams <laughs> for me. <laughs> All right, now, how did you get involved? What was the deal with Congo and uh, and teaming up with Brian Eddy for Attack from Mars? Yeah, originally, uh, after I finished up with uh, Demolition Man, uh, where um, I guess that's what everybody calls them, um, I uh, I did like a test fixture for Theater of Magic. A lot of what people, I don't know if this has been discussed before, but a lot of what we do, both you know, now at Stern and back at Williams, uh, is uh, the mechanical engineers design these mechanical gadgets and whatever. And oftentimes we like to know you know, how they're going to hold up over time. It's like anybody else who tests mechanical things. Um, you want to make sure they hold up in the field. So um, I ended up writing code for uh, Theater of Magic, uh, the uh, the trunk. Um, basically, it was. Uh, a little self-contained fixture that would fire a ball at the trunk and come back, and then the trunk would spin and turn and fire it at another side of the trunk and then, you know, pick up the ball with the magnet and turn and drop it into the, you know, the little lock-up underneath the play field and kick it out and so on and so forth. So um, after I did that, I mean, I got there, and I'm like, hey, you know, I want to work on a project, you know, get me on a project. And so um, I was put on... uh, Congo uh, with uh, Bill Grupp. Uh, I, I enjoyed working with Bill Grupp a lot. He's a good guy. Uh, I was, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, I guess projects back then were done by two people for the most part. There was like sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, I'm not going to say like a, you know, like a Data East. There was a a game programmer, a display programmer, because in that case, like the game programmer did all the game code and all the game rules, and the display programmer just programmed effects, you know, it didn't have anything to do with, like, what the game actually did. It was just all of what you saw on the display. Or at Williams, it was more like there was, uh, you know, a lead programmer and a support programmer. Uh, the lead programmer was sort of responsible for, like, the overall structure of the code and, uh, you know, just the... the, the you know, I guess, uh, dealing with uh, most of the technical aspects of the of the game. And, you know, for the most part, uh, uh, programmers, two programmers who would work on a project, they'd, you know, like collaborate on rules and stuff like that. But uh, the lead programmer was more responsible for, like, the, the technical aspects of the, of the, the, the project, uh, how the code was structured, uh, writing uh, device drivers for uh, different mechanical things so on and so forth. After that, I mean, I suppose um, the the work was sort of shared as far as uh, both programmers would write display effects and lamp effects and do rules and so on and so forth. Um, so I was uh, I was basically um, support uh, programmer for um, for Bill on uh, on Congo um, up until the point where uh, the original I had. I don't know if people know this. Uh, Congo used to be a, a two-level game. Uh, it was a four-flipper game, uh, and uh, it had an upper playfield with two flippers. 
Um, it was actually a very interesting play field. Um, it didn't play, uh, and I guess this is why it, it sort of got redesigned. Um, it didn't play, the, the upper play field didn't play very well, and it was sort of decided that, that you know, Congo, like, in, in its current form back then, it was a two-level game. It was also expensive um, at a time when, you know, we were looking to reduce costs. Um, you know, it was decided that Congo should be um, redesigned. So basically, you go back to the drawing board on the play field, well, you've got a couple of programmers sitting around because they, uh, most of what happened at Williams was that, uh, you know, you didn't really do a whole heck of a lot until you've got a play field and then you start working on the on the code. Um, so Bill and I were just sort of sitting around uh, after that and... Uh, so, you know, Ted has a problem now. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with these guys? And Bill was sort of, you know, left on Congo, and, and, and they didn't want to leave two people on it, you know, sitting around. I'm not going to say doing nothing because there was no such thing at, at, as doing nothing at, at, at any pinball company uh, that I worked for. But uh, uh, I was taken off, and, and I'm pretty sure it was Larry who, who, you know, was like, hey, you know, said to Ted, put him on again. Um, and uh, so uh, I got put on uh, Attack from Mars with uh, with Brian, and you know they kind of asked me first, which I thought was funny. I'm like, <laughs> what do you need to ask me for? Just you know, put me on it. It sounds fine. And uh, uh, the, the Attack from Mars, um, the playfield had already been designed, uh, and uh, Brian actually had like the Whitewood up and flipping, um, uh, and so. Um, you know, I didn't know much about Brian. I mean, I knew I knew Shadow, um, which, which I happen to like a lot. I mean, I, I like Shadow a lot. I love playing it. Um, but to me, it's like you know, it, it's a it's a good example of every new designer's. Um, I, I I really don't like to use the word mistake, but I mean, everybody who I've ever seen like design a game for the first time, they just seem to want it to be like the kitchen sink. They want to like, it, you know. They've wanted to design a game for so long, and they have all these ideas, and they're like, oh, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this. And they put them all into one game. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, just put a couple of the good ideas into the game, and then save a couple more for the next game. But uh, I, I saw Shadow, and, and I liked the game, and I saw Attack from Mars, and I thought, you know, wow, you know, this, this looks pretty cool. I mean, the theme appealed to me, and a lot of what Brian, you know, wanted to do with the whole, you know, the whole, uh, uh, you know, uh, campy uh, science fiction stuff uh, really appealed to me. And so um, the, the one thing I was concerned about with that project was, though, that, um, you know, Brian was a, was a programmer, and uh, he, uh, when I talked with him, he said that, you know, he did, uh, um, he did the majority of the code on, on Shadow, and I talked to Mike Boone a little bit, too, because Mike Boone worked on Shadow. And, uh, you know, I just asked him, like, hey, how's it, how's it to work with Brian and so on and so forth? So, um, uh, you know, there wasn't really a problem, but um, I sort of wanted control of the uh, of the software. I mean, it's like, hey, Brian, you're a designer. You have your hands full. I don't want you doing 70% of the code on this game. You know, you have to trust me that, that you know, I'm your programmer and, and, and I can do this job and I'll get it done and you'll be happy with it. Um, and, you know... If it were me in that position, I'd be like, uh, I don't know if I can do that. 
So I, I just. Uh, but did they? They ultimately they made that decision of that and let you you know have your way with it, right? Yeah, I talked with Larry a little bit about it. I said, look, Larry, this is what I'd like to do, and you know I want to make sure that you know we have the best chance at, at doing the, you know a good job in this game and. And, you know, for that to happen, I, I really believe that, like, you know, Brian, you're the game designer. If you want to be a game designer, get your damn hands out of the code. <laughs> it's like you can't do it all, as, as I've learned very recently. It's, it's, it's very hard um, to do all of the work. Like I said, it's not, it's not all that complicated. It's just, there's just no end to it. There's no end. So, I mean, on Attack from Mars, how did you feel that came out? Um, I think pretty pretty good. Uh, I mean, as far as, like, what I consider to be really my first game. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was really the first game that you did everything. Right. I mean, everything is everything is a, is a big word as far as, as, as pinball goes. Um as far as software is concerned, certainly, but, uh, you know, we're very much, um, uh, and all projects are this way, you know, we're, we're, we're a team, and one of the things that, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize it now, um, because the environment I work in now is a lot different than, than, than what it was at Williams. I mean, now at Stern, um, it, with the exception of Dennis, who who works uh, as an employee of the company and is and is there on on a daily basis, uh, there really isn't a lot of face to face time with the designer because to me it's like, I mean, no one person on any project is is responsible for all of the the greatness, maybe all of the failure because I've seen some bozos screw some stuff up. But um, no one person, I don't think, can really claim like, oh, this game is great because of me and no one else. Um, what happened at Williams was, at least with Brian and, and well, also George afterwards, was that, you know, Brian, he'd be busy during his day, and then, you know, he'd, he'd go and leave whenever at 9 or 10 or, or whatever, and... But he'd come into my office, and we'd always talk about stuff. And I'd say, hey, you know, this is what happened today. This is what's done, you know. And, and you know, here I did this, play this. He'd play the game for, like, half an hour or sometimes an hour or whatever. And then we'd talk about stuff. Like, okay, what did you like? What did you not like? And and um, I think that works really well. I mean, I, I think that, that two people, uh, uh, you know, independently, a, a person can have, some good ideas, and and then you know it's just some validation to have somebody else come by and say, yeah, you know this is good. Or if he's stuck, or if I'm stuck, then the other person can sort of pick up the slack. It's it's really hard for just you know one person to to feel like they're responsible. I mean, even though we all have different jobs, I mean Brian's designer, I'm programmer. There's usually like one of each discipline on a project, um, although. I suppose uh, later on it was more like two people as far as programming goes um, at Williams uh, because there was, well, we just kept wanting to design more stuff into our game as far as software, and it required more people um, based on the schedule. But uh, 
I, I mean, it, it just really helps a lot to have people, you know, come by and, and, and play the game and you see them have fun or you see them confused by something or, or whatever and, and, Pinball, uh, at least programming and doing rules and things like that, and design in general, I think, too, it's an iterative process. I mean, you certainly try to put your best foot forward all of the time. And based on the people who are doing the work today, they have a lot of experience. And at this point, you're going to get, uh, I mean, you're going to get something pretty good with, with that. Um, but the rest of it is is just a lot of uh, evolution and tweaking. Um to, to take a game from, um, you know, something that's, that's, you know, either fair or pretty good, uh, you know, to something that's great, hopefully. Now, what, uh, what was your involvement with Safecracker? Um, yeah, after Attack from Mars, uh, uh, I don't know, I was just kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to say disappointed, but um, yeah, it's just really frustrating when, People come by and they're like, hey, we love this game. Hey, we love this game. Hey, we love this game. And then you sell like, you know, 3,000 of them. I'm like, oh, well, everybody must love this game. So, um, I don't know. Afterwards, I was, I was also very tired because I, I worked really hard on that project, um, Pack from Mars. Um, projects later on, after you do a game, um, you sort of build up, uh, your own, uh, I don't know, like toolkit of uh, of software that you can, you know, more easily just sort of drop into another game. Like, oh, I need to implement, you know, on a track mode. Well, you know, here's all this stuff, and it allows me to like go forwards and backwards. And you know, for Attack from Mars, I just like sort of had to write all that from from you know from from scratch. I mean, not totally from scratch. There were certainly examples around, but didn't you guys have a central programming library that you shared from? Oh, absolutely. I'm just talking about stuff like, like at the game level. I mean, uh, Larry's operating system was everybody, well, except for Futz and Ruder, which I never understood, but, um, everybody used, uh, his, his operating system, you know, as is. Um, and it was a great operating system. I mean, I mean, to me, it's like a, 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 a you know, a good operating system, um, will, uh, allow, uh, Maybe people with varying uh, levels of technical ability to do, uh, uh, you know, to easily do uh, the things they want to do. Have the creative people be creative and and not get bogged down by a, a lot of technical details. I mean, for me, I'm I'm a pretty technical person, and I've done mostly technical work my whole life. But uh, as far as operating systems go, um, you know, I think. A good operating system is is going to be simple enough to use to allow a creative person to be not so technical, and I think you know that's probably what um, Larry's system did really well. I mean, he designed it so that you know, most people could just come in and pick it up and and work with it, which was uh, which was great. But also there was. Uh, uh, um, People, uh, you know, obviously used it, and and and, um, um, but but there's a, a, a difference between, uh, you know, what's in the operating system and some of the things that that you would maybe do in your game, uh, uh, 
that maybe somebody else wouldn't do uh, in their game. I mean, for me, like, um, um, I had a way of dealing with, uh, uh, well, I mean, just say something like a track mode. You know, if I implement something where, oh, you know, I'd like to be able to hit the left flipper to page backwards through a track mode and the right flipper, uh, you know, to page forward, that's, you know, some uh, uh, piece of software that's written and then I can just use it uh, from from one game to another game and so on and so forth. But it isn't necessarily part of, of you know, this core operating system that, that everybody uses. So that's all I'm saying is that, uh, you know, there's some things that you do, uh, some structure to your game, not, not the system, uh, that happens that, you know, it's, it's a little learning curve. But like I say, there, there are plenty of examples. But anyways, back to the Safecracker, what was your involvement there? Um, Safecracker, well, like, after AFM, um, I, I never really learned how to relax after finishing with the project, but um, the Safecracker was underway. It was mostly a different kind of uh, game. It was a, um, there was a lot of, I don't want to say pressure, but there was a lot of, of uh Desire at, at, uh, from people at the company to do uh, different types of pinball games. We had again, there had been a decline in sales and so on and so forth. Um, and people, like they normally do, uh, they they sort of say, "Hey, let's reinvent pinball. Let's let's do something new and different to pinball uh, that uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll get our our sales back." and um, History will tell you <laughs> that um, you know you just have to ride out the the downtrend or whatever and come back and do good a good solid pinball machine. I mean, like if you look at what happened uh, in the '90s, I mean it's almost exactly what like what happened back in in the '80s. You know, you have this big boom, and then people start doing wide body games. And then, you know, like there's a downtrend and then people start doing games like with uh, old games that are just artwork conversions, you know, like Jackbot, Pinbot, and, you know, whatever, I don't know, uh, uh, I guess like Warlock was a game like that. Or people start doing like these hybrid games like, uh, you know, uh, back back in the, in the, I guess in the 80s it was video that was, that was, uh, making all of the money for the people who did uh, coin-op games. And, and, and for us, it was, uh, at least over in Europe, it was all of these uh, uh, these AWPs, amusement with prize games. Um, and so everybody gets on that kick, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we need to incorporate more of these elements into our games. And it's like, I mean, just pick up, uh, there's a, a great book. Um, I love reading this book. I probably read it about once a year. Um, it's called uh, the Fountainhead. Uh, forget it. Okay. <laughs> you didn't hear the Python interview, did you? No, actually, I have not listened to. Uh, I have not listened to that yet. Uh, I, I'm sure it's very colorful. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Python is. Uh, uh, Python is a character for sure. <laughs> Um, anyway, this book, uh, I, I, I read the book every once in a while, and, and it, it's really, uh, I mean, history just, it's, it's another way 
to, to look at history and say, well, history just repeats itself because it's like, uh, anyway, so we're doing all these things with, with, uh, with AWPs and Safecracker was one of those games. It's like a smaller game and it's time play and it's got a trail game, a board game and it spits out tokens. And, uh, so, um, I was, uh, uh, you know, I didn't really have anything to do and it was going to be a while before uh, Brian could uh, get another playfield uh, together uh, before we met to decide on what we wanted to do and whatnot. So uh, I was put on uh, Safecracker. I helped out with uh, some uh, display effects, and I wrote uh, um, Assault on the Vault, which was the uh, the mode that you uh, that you got when you when you put the, the the magic token back into the game. It played like a different kind of a uh, game. Right. So and I. I well, uh, Safecracker was, uh, like a lot of people, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. I mean, Pat was the designer, but, uh, as far as, like, the cast of people who, uh, really, uh, engineered the game, it was, it was a lot of people because, uh, there was a lot of designing that had to go on. It was a smaller game, so, but we needed a smaller cabinet, and the back box was different, and there were these token mechanisms, and, I mean, it was just, uh, it was just a lot. <laughs> it was a lot in, in a lot of respects. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, an interesting project to work on because I hadn't, uh, I mean, after working on Attack from Mars, it was, um, uh, it was different to be, you know, in a, like, kind of a supporting role again because, um, I mean, for me, the role of support is always, uh, um, I'll always defer to whoever the lead is and say, hey, what do you want? I'd be certainly um, willing to offer suggestions and comments and stuff like that. And actually, as far as Safecracker goes, I mean, Assault on the Vault was, um, you know, I just sort of kind of went off and and, and did it. and I think it's a pretty cool mode myself. I, 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 you know, it's like two games in one, and I, I, I like that whole concept, and I like the assault on the vault type, you know, thing. I, I think it was well done. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Dave Cracker, I think. Uh, um, I mean, I, I really like the concept of the, the tokens, like being able to win a token. Um, you know, I. I uh, uh, the rest of the game, like the smaller uh, pinball and time stuff and and whatever, and, and that's. I mean, I think you know, just just being able to to, to play for tokens was, uh, you know, for me like the the real hook uh, of that game. And uh, I don't know. Um, I think also, uh, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I don't know to try that again or or or, or not, but. Uh, I, I thought the whole concept of that was interesting, uh, you know, with the um, with the uh, with the tokens. But yeah, no, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a great idea too. It just you know, the market obviously didn't bite into it as well as you probably had planned. But I, I thought the whole implementation and I like it when you're playing and it spits a token out and it rolls down the glass and hits you. I think that's great. Absolutely. I mean, that's like. For when the first time it happens, you're like, "Wow, what's this?" And and 
I, I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting. I think, uh, um, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see w- w- what would happen with that game if, uh, you know, or just like some token backs applied to, uh, you know, like a normal pinball machine. I mean, it, it really gets to a, 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 you know, a subject that I think, um, I've always wanted, I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty good player, um, but I always try to look at, at, at games uh, and, and figure out ways to uh, make things more uh, equitable, I guess, because really um, the games don't make much money when, when there are people like me playing them, and I always want, when I work on a game, for, for an average guy to just be able to walk up to it and have some fun. Um, I think, you know, over over the years, we've designed a lot of the randomness out of the games. And now it's like, you know, unless you have a ball saver and all your ramps feed the flipper lanes and the pop bumpers can't drain you down the side or whatever, uh, you know, the games are just, like, so based on 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 skill that... that uh, with that, a lot of the fun goes goes out of it, and I, and I almost wish that you know the games could could get back to the day, you know, more like when when I played Eight Ball Deluxe. I mean, this is how games used to be. I mean, uh, Eight Ball Deluxe. Our, our games are are so much entertainment right now. It's like we tell these long drawn out stories, and it's like, okay, here's an extra ball, so you can see more of the story. Okay, here's another extra ball, so you can see more of the story. And and back in the day. I think like Eight Ball Deluxe and even earlier than that, I mean, uh, it's like one of the first games I remember playing. Um, the games were more like, I think mean, they were more like gambling. You know, you're like, okay, I'm going to put my quarter in. And you play, and you're like, ah, oh, all right, I tanked. I didn't do anything here. So you, you put you put another quarter and you play. And then, you know, you, you have another bad game. And then you have like three, four, five, six bad games. And then you have that one magic game where you win like six or eight credits. And you're like, wow, that's why I'm playing the game. And extra balls, there's only one extra ball, there's only one way to get it, and and the game times were quick, and the turnover was quick. And, and it was back when, like, ball time really mattered. I mean, ball time doesn't seem like it matters much anymore because we don't have people lined up to play our games. You know, it's just kind of like, well, you know, people come up and they play them and then they walk away. And back in the day, people used to care about ball time because they're like, well, yeah, you know, we have people lined up to play them. And, uh, I mean, today it's like, it's almost like there's too much skill required to play our games today. And we design too much into them based on that. But, uh, meh, I'm off the subject a little bit, sorry. Well, let's get to uh, Medieval Madness. Tell me about that project and how you came up with the name and the the whole initial design and thinking and the programming. Yeah, um, Medieval Madness was, uh, um, that was probably the most fun I ever had working on any project, um, because we, we basically had the same team, uh, as we had, uh, for Attack from Mars, but, uh, uh, you know, we lost Doug Watson, um, and picked up, uh, Greg Ferreris, uh, to do, uh, the artwork on the game. Now, Greg is, uh, Greg, I think, is probably the best pinball artist on the planet. Um, his stuff is just uh, absolutely amazing. I mean, 
he, he can even make you know a game like No Fear look good, and uh, some of the stuff he's done just over his career has been just very diverse and very colorful and and beautiful. Um, Medieval Madness, uh, Brian, you know, uh, oh, we're going over themes and stuff like that, and and uh, uh, we had decided, I mean, ever. For whatever reason, the, the medieval theme was appealing to pretty much everybody on the team. And, and for me, I, I mean, my appeal was I'm a big Monty Python fan. And, uh, I mean, I really felt like, uh, the French guy in Attack from Mars is my favorite guy. Cameron loves him too. Um, is, uh, you know, he's like that Monty Python kind of guy from, uh, uh, so. yeah, from, uh, from Holy Grail, and, uh, um, to me, it's like I sort of saw, uh, medieval, I saw Holy Grail, um, and I thought, wow, you know, we could do a lot, uh, with the humor in this game, and, uh, because, uh, to me, it was like, uh, what was important to me about Attack from Mars was just sort of the light, uh, uh, fun, uh, campy humor. I mean, to me, it's like w- when I play a, a pinball game, I, I want to be entertained. I, I don't want to, you know, get bogged down in, in uh, you know, like the problems of the world. I want to be able to play a game and just like sort of forget about whatever's going on and, and just get caught up in the game. Um, and and there were so many elements that that we could use. I mean, I think. Uh, uh, you know, back to like Dungeons and Dragons and, and all of that. And, and it just, um, you mentioned some themes and I think a lot of people or, or myself, I'll, I'll, somebody will mention to me a theme and, and it's almost like I'll get an instant response like, yeah, that would be a great pinball theme or no, that's probably not a good pinball theme. And Medieval Madness, we didn't even call it that. We just, I think we called it like Castle or something. We called it like the Castle game. Um, <laughs> because Brian wanted to put the, you know, have the big castle on it. And, uh, I think probably all my code that I wrote at the time, it was just called Castle something. And it wasn't called Medieval Madness. Um, uh, and so, uh, but no, I mean, everybody seemed really into it. Um, and, and, but we couldn't decide on a name. You know, we decided, okay, we're gonna do this castle game. And, uh, Brian, uh, he had he had this list of names, and they were all really bad. And and the one name that I guess everybody it didn't jump out at them, but they thought, oh well, you know, this one isn't so bad, you know, medieval madness. And it was very late in the project that we decided what what the name was going to be. It was almost like, hey, we need a name. What do you, you know? What are we going to call it? And and so we, we we sort of settled for medieval madness. But, uh, um, you know, uh, that game, uh, when I worked on Attack from Mars, because the playfield was already sort of designed, uh, when I got put on the project, um, Medieval Madness wasn't. And uh, I remember, and it was a great experience, that's why, um, because we all sat around as a team, Brian, myself, Dan Forden, Adam Ryan, Greg, and Greg's a great creative person. He he contributed a lot to the game. Um, 
we sat around for many days and talked about, uh, you know, the game and what we'd like to have and so on and so forth. Um, it was probably the, the first time that, that, uh, you know, from the very beginning I was, I was on a project where, uh, uh, you know, I was part of, of, I guess, like, uh, the design team from day one, you know, from like the very beginning. So even though, uh, Attack from Mars was the, 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 the game that, that I first, uh, I consider like my first game programming, um, Medieval was probably the one that was the first one where I was, you know, like sort of involved, um, you know, w- with a group of people from the very beginning, you know, and just like deciding what we're going to do. So. So that one was the most fun you had? I think so because, um, the pressure of uh, having to uh, do all of this stuff for the first time, like on Attack from Mars, was a lot more comfortable working uh, with uh, Larry's system and uh, and and stuff just sort of uh, happens more easily because uh, I was more familiar with uh, you know do's and don'ts um, and uh, I could you know, sort of spend more time uh, talking, you know, with Brian and other people on the, on the team about things. The one thing we struggled with, though, on the project was uh, the, the catapult. Like, Attack from Mars, um, which uh, I think I had for seven months, um, uh, went together pretty smoothly. I mean, there weren't a lot of, you know, hiccups along the way as far as implementing rules and then saying, oh boy, this is not working. We have to start over or whatever. Um, but on Medieval, I remember the catapult, there were like two or three iterations of rules for the catapult that were just bad. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we just decided like, okay, I mean, we, we like the idea of launching animals and stuff like that. That's just sort of fun. I mean, again, it's like very Monty Python-esque, you know, they launch the cow at the, at the castle, and, you know, so it's like, okay, well, we'll do all these other animals and all this other stuff. Um, but, uh, I don't know, it just, uh, that that whole rule just came together very slowly and took lots of iterations to, to get where it was. Did, did you guys ever try and actually get a Monty Python license for this? No. No, I don't think that was ever considered. Um, it, I mean, I'm sure we, 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 we might have talked about it, but as far as pursuing it, no. I, we just sort of felt that, um, and, and I believe this today, is that... Uh, yeah, you didn't need it. Well, a license is probably... Uh, it can limit. It can limit you bad points. Uh, good points of a license is, for the average Joe off the street, okay, they can just look at it and know what it is, if it's a good license. The bad point is is that as creative people and designers and programmers and whatever else we are, uh, it's, 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 it's less creative, like we can, we can uh, it's harder for us to, to, to do things with the game because yeah, it fences you in. Taste that we do something else, or the people we're licensing from won't let us have creative freedom to do like 
a lot of the fun, goofy stuff that we put into our non-licensed games. Right. right. So. Now, did you have some uh, involvement with slot machine projects, too? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I, uh, well, Williams was, uh, <sighs> Williams, boy, Williams was a video game pinball slot machine company. And, uh, at, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but, um, basically, the video game portion of, uh, Williams got removed, and then, so we were left with, uh, <laughs> we were left with two divisions that lost money. <laughs> we had, uh, we had Williams Pinball, uh, Williams Valley, uh, Pinball, uh, that lost money. And then we had uh, WMS Gaming uh, that lost money. And um, I think a lot of management really wanted uh, its pinball designers to become more interested and involved in slot machine design because I, I think a lot of management really felt like, hey, this is, this is really where our future lies as a public company. You know, nobody's happy with selling, you know, 50-whatever-thousand games one year and then, you know, 15,000-whatever games the following year. They just don't like that. Your shareholders will just, like, bail on you in droves. Um, but the, the the gaming business was perceived to be this sort of uh, infinitely growing business that that Williams could take, you know, a little a little piece of and do very well with. And, and so... Um, there were a lot of, uh, you know, people trying to get uh, the pinball people involved in in, in slot machine design. Um, so I, I worked on uh, I worked on a slot machine uh, between Medieval Mathis and uh, and uh, Monster Bash. After uh, did you like it? Uh, actually, uh, I did. I enjoyed working on it. Um, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a new experience for me, and I, like I say, I always enjoy learning new things. Um, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, designing a slot machine, it's a lot, you really have to concentrate more on theme and presentation, and, uh, the, the game itself is, you're very limited in what you can do. Um, it's just a bunch of math, basically. And, and, you know, you can tweak your math, uh, uh, you know, you, you want your payouts to be different or whatever, you, you know, you steal from, from Paul to pay Peter and, you know, it's, it's, you're very restricted in what you can do, at least with real spinning slot machines, which is, which is the, 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 uh, the game I did. But, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. It was, uh, um, uh, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. Which slot was it? Uh, it was a slot called uh, Mermaid's Treasure, and uh, it later got redesigned into a game called uh, Mermaid's Gold because uh, we were going through some uh, legal issues, I guess, with IGT and and one of their patents, and uh, the system the, uh, the gaming group had uh, apparently violated one of those patents. So IGT, you know, it's all a bunch of lawyer stuff. It's really ugly. You get an injunction, stop selling games, and all this, 
other other mess. So then, you know, there was a scrambling effort to... I wasn't part of this. I was, like, working on Medieval Madness Code at the time. But afterwards, there were just these people scrambling to, like, kind of pick up the pieces from all of, you know, the direction that, that WMS had been going with their... Uh, uh, with their with their uh, slot machines and how the uh, the math was implemented in their system. Yeah, IGT was really trying to drag Williams down on in in regard to slot reels, and that's what kind of forced Williams into the into the video slot market, which in the end kind of turned out to be a good thing for them because they they basically rule that market. You know now their niche with um, I mean they started with uh, reel them in, which I mean to me is like perfect uh theme for gambling i mean it's like you go out fishing you know you're like hey i don't know if i'm going to catch anything you know it might be raining it might be sunny you know you 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 go out with with lots of expectation like people go into a casino they're like hey i'm gonna win and then you know it's just like you go out fishing yeah i'm gonna catch my big fish today or i'm gonna catch a bunch of fish or whatever and then you go and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't so i i mean to me it was a great theme and then you know they just did a good job with the game. So now, what? Um, tell me about how you got uh, hooked up with Monster Bash. Now that was a George Gomez game. It wasn't a you know a Brian Eddy game. How did you uh, get switched over to uh, George as your designer? Yeah, Brian. Uh, Brian bailed out on us. Um, which hey, I, I never fault anybody for wanting to pursue their interests. I mean, again, life is short. You have to. Uh, you have to do what you what you enjoy doing because uh while well, you can and so Brian uh, really uh, wanted to work in in video um, Brian well Brian implemented the uh, he wrote uh, the two video modes and uh, he wrote the the the, uh, the software attack video mode in attack from Mars and he wrote the uh, uh the save the children video mode in uh uh, medieval madness. So he, I mean, Brian loved video games, and so he, uh, he wanted to go over to Midway to work on, uh, work on video games and, and, you know, management at Williams and Midway, basically the same. Well, wait, wait, wait. The, um, I meant to ask you this before. In regards to video modes implemented in pinball machines, uh, what is your, you know, there's some people that hate that and there's some people that like it. What's your feeling about it? Um, well, I think they have their place in pinball. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, if you're going to do a video mode, it better be fun. Otherwise, it has no business in the game. Uh, if you're going to do a video mode, it better not be like Doctor Who, where I scratch my head and go, um, am I playing a pinball machine or am I playing, you know, am I playing a pinball machine that all it has in it is video mode? I mean, like, I play Doctor Who, and, like, I can play the whole game, make one shot, and then play, you know, like, oh, here's a wave of video mode, and then make, like, the same shot again, and, uh, you know, we're mostly on playing video mode, and I'm not playing pinball. Um, I think, you know, what aggravates the video mode, too, is uh, the, the average player is not going to understand video mode. Uh, you know, 80% of the people who play the game it just be like, you know, ball goes in a hole, start video mode. And they, they're like, hey, how come my ball's not coming out of the hole? You know, and right. they don't know that there's a display and there's a video mode. And they don't know what to do. Um, as long as it's far enough out so that when I say far enough out, you know, uh, 
uh, to the point where uh, the ball time's such where I figure, or, or, or a feature's far enough out where I figure, okay, I'm not dealing with an average guy here. I'm dealing with more like an intermediate guy or an expert guy. Um, and the video mode's fun, um, and it, it relates to the theme of the game. Then you know I, I think it's a nice uh, the it's a nice diversion it's a nice break um, you know and I think uh, uh, both in Attack from Mars and, and Medieval Madness you know all of that criteria was met I mean it's it's to get super jets uh, in Attack from Mars you you're probably not a, a, a bozo uh, if you get super jets I mean you certainly had to get the ball up into the bumpers enough times or started a couple of multi-balls or whatever. Um, and same thing for Medieval Madness. I mean, you have to know how to work lane change. I, I think the, the video mode of Medieval Madness is more of like the the distance and the, and the level of skill I, I would, you know, normally expect, um, you know, at least for me, to, to have a video mode in the game. But I like them in general. Well, back to Monster Bash. Tell me about your uh, involvement with that project and working with George. George Gomez is. Yeah. Um, so Brian was on his way out to uh, over to uh, Midway to work on video, and then uh, I was sort of left like, "Hey, <laughs> where'd my designer go?" And uh, so Larry, uh, uh, Larry had asked me um, if I was interested in working with George and. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly saw George around the department. I didn't, you know, really know him all that well or talk with him too much or whatever. Um, the, the, the most I, I, I got to, to uh, interface with George was uh, George designed the, uh, the exploding castle on Medieval Madness, like kind of in the, the 11th hour and, and, and saved it as a, as a feature on the game because... Uh, our, our mechanical people uh, on the game were having trouble uh, coming up with a reliable, cost-effective uh, implementation for exploding castles. So um, I was certainly thankful for him uh, for that uh, because that's like one of the big things in the game. Uh, so Larry asked me uh, about working with George, and, and I mean... I, I feel like I could probably work with with anybody, but as far as pinball goes, uh, I told him, I said, hey, you know, if, if we can come up with a, a theme and, and we can agree on it um, and both be interested in it, then, yeah, sure, why not? And so, um, uh, I don't know, we were, we were not having a, a, an easy time, like, trying to come up with uh, uh, themes because... Um, George was into like robots and spy themes and, and monster trucks and stuff like that. George's like, you know, testosterone. Not as much as Steve, but, you know, he's the guy and, you know, he's like, he likes, uh, you know, like stuff like spy themes and monster trucks and, you know, whatever. So, um, and robots. And so I was, uh, wanting to do like a goofy monsters game. You know, like make up our own sort of characters and have, um, uh, you know, just sort of fun, uh, uh, monsters that you could, uh, not take too seriously. 
um, you know, you could think of uh, maybe not so much like how Scream is now, but um, uh, uh, what am I saying, Scream? Uh, uh, what is that uh, uh, that movie uh, where they do the parodies on the horse? Scary movie? Yeah, scary movie, right, thanks. Um, uh, not so much that, but, uh, uh, you know, but just inventing our own kind of um, monsters and having... Uh, you know, just kind of a fun time with it, like we did uh, Attack from Mars and Medieval Madness. I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think, you know, that kind of thing, um, you know, worked uh, in both of those games. And uh, George really wanted a license. He's like, nah, i got to have a license. And and I didn't necessarily agree with him, because I had just come off of two games that were not licensed at all. And I, I mean... I, I didn't see the value. Um, and uh, one day he came walking down the hall and he had a little brochure for Universal Studios Monsters. And he said, uh, he, he like popped into my office and he's like, I'm doing this game. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, you're not doing that without me. That's, I, I mean, I just like felt really, you know, like, hey, that monsters thing is my idea. You you wanted to do robots, you know, or James Bond or whatever. Um, so uh, you know, I basically said to him, like, no, you're, you're not doing it without me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the beginning of Monster Bash. Now, originally, uh, we wanted to call it Monster Mash um, and use the song, uh, you know, the Monster Mash song, because like, uh, uh, yeah, it plays into the whole campy theme. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Roger uh, Sharp uh, contacted the the guy, I guess, who, like, it's his only song or one of his only songs or one of his only songs that was, like, uh, well-known or a hit or something like that and talked to him. And I think he wanted, like, half a million dollars to use the song in the game. And Roger, you know, he's like, well, no. <laughs> this is what we normally offer people. And, and the guy, I think, thought, you know, we were trying to screw him or something. And it's like, well, no, this is, these are the deals we do for music. And I don't remember what it was. It's like a dollar a game or five dollars a game or I, I can't even remember what it was. But, you know, the guy was, he just was like, no, not interested. And, um, uh, I don't know. The way I look at it is like, hey, you know, you could either have your thing in a pinball machine and make some money off of it, or you could have nothing. And so the guy wanted nothing. So we changed gears and we did the Monster Bash, and the music was a little bit different. Um, uh, Kevin O'Connor, who was artist on the game, um, and Vince Ponarelli, they're both like, well, Vince was the sound guy on the game. It was the first time I had uh, worked with Vince. Actually, what's interesting is, is on every single project at Williams that I worked on, uh, uh, from Attack from Mars and Medieval Madness, not Monster Bash, but also uh, Safe Cracker, at No Fear, which I helped out on a little bit uh, when I first got there, and uh, uh, Revenge from Mars. Um, Dan Forden was the, uh, the sound engineer on all those games, and Vince was uh, uh, was was up on. Uh, Monster Bash, and uh, Vince, I didn't realize this, but uh, he went to school uh, right down the street from me. Uh, he went to uh, uh, Berkeley School of Music, which is right on Mass Ave uh, in, in Boston, and uh, 
Uh, we were there, like, you know, within a mile of each other for, you know, while we went to school. But uh, he was into uh, rock and roll, like, doing, like, kind of a rock and roll type theme. And Kevin, not, I'm not sure if it was Kevin and Vince, or I think it was mostly Kevin, um, you know, suggested doing, uh, you know, like, kind of, uh, a, a, you know, a, a monsters with uh, uh, instruments and, and music and so on. Um which is actually kind of what they do down in Florida at Universal. Um, they have, like, the guys on stage, and they come out and they play and dance around and stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, it just, uh, it, it took kind of a, a little turn from what we, um, from what we had uh, uh, thought of originally, which was more of, uh, like, a, a more classical treatment of the, uh, of the monsters, but uh, it turned out being more like a rock and roll type thing. Now, what about uh, um, Lyman's Lament? What was the thinker behind that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, you had nothing to do with that. Well, Gomez, I call him Gomez when I'm showing him disrespect. Gomez, okay, he he put this thing like. He thinks I complain a lot. I don't know what he's talking about, but he thinks I like to complain a lot. And uh, so he jokingly said, yeah, I'm going to put this feature in this song. It was supposed to be a song uh, that, you know, it's like, okay, it's just Lyman complaining about stuff in the game because, you know, he likes to complain. And so Kevin put it on the play field, and then George came in and hammered me, you know, and said, Hey, you have to put this feature in the game, and so um, uh, I, I really didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, I'd prefer like I, I like seeing my name, you know. And okay, uh, designer George Gomez, you know, software uh, Lyman, that's fine. But you know, elsewhere on the playfield, forget it. Um, and so I was sort of, uh, you know, forced to, to put it in. So. Well, you, you had to do the voiceovers for it, right? Sure. Yeah, Vince had me down in the in the in the studio. Um, actually, Vince and uh, Greg Dunlap used to come in to my office uh, pretty much every day at around 4 p.m. I don't know why 4 p.m., but they come by around 4 p.m. and we play the game. And um, the game was just a drainy piece of crap as the Whitewood. It just like you plunge the ball, the ball go in the bumpers. And it would like the bumper would shoot it off into the rail uh, where the spinner is and the, go straight down the middle. And it's like it was so funny just sitting there watching those two play the game. They just get so frustrated and then they just go right back and play some more. And uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd listen to these guys, you know, talk about you know the game just being really mean to them and. and draining and stuff like that. So that's mostly what it ended up being because um, Vince sort of developed his own vocabulary as far as that went and uh, he invented all these phrases, which I, I won't repeat. They're not repeatable, but um, uh, that's sort of how that all evolved. Now, what was your involvement in Pinball 2000? Uh, Pinball 2000... Uh, Mostly started as, uh, I know John Papaduke had a, uh, 
had a, a sort of a presentation where you know Pinball 2000 was uh, well basically take a pinball back glass and replace it with the monitor. That was Pinball 2000, and then um, I think that was if we had taken that to a show, um, you know that would have been pretty much um, the end of it all. I mean I think that was everybody's worst fear when we took. Pinball 2000 to ATEI in London. We're at the distributor event, and and for the people who didn't know, I mean, there's certainly people who knew, but for the people who didn't know, I think that was what they were fearing. They're like, no, they're just going to unveil a pinball and it's going to have a monitor, you know, and then, I, I don't know, I think we've been surprised everybody um, because we actually had a, 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 a new sort of uh, play mechanic for the game. But, um, yeah, after Monster Bash, uh, Larry wanted me to work on Pinball 2000, uh, not the John Papadou version, but um, the uh, the implementation that George and Pat had come up with. Um, when I saw it, they had, like, the, the robot character, George and his robot, um, and then the hollow pin, I guess, is what they were calling it, or whatever. Um, uh I mean, it looked very interesting, and it just, I think it, it, it inspired people as far as their imaginations go uh, for game design because uh, everybody just saw this new medium that they could work with, and, and uh, you know, it just made people uh, people think about new, new things to do with pinball. Um, and uh, for me, I mean, I had spent years uh, you know, playing like sort of mechanical, whatever you want to call it, pinball, and not have the video. I mean, it was sort of uh, like, uh, uh, you know, sacrilege or whatever to see this thing. Um, but it looked interesting, and um, I mean, I, I just, I sort of decided to work on it because, you know, I felt like, hey, you know, this is, this is our best chance. And, and uh, I mean, I don't know if everybody understands this, but uh, basically if, if George and, and Pat didn't do what they did and have that presentation, then, then we were all pretty much done. I mean, doors would have closed mm, probably shortly after Monster Bash. I mean, um, uh, we probably all would have gotten picked out uh, a lot sooner. So um, it was sort of, I don't, I, it was not put to me this way, but um, I, I, I sort of came to this conclusion that it was uh, work on Pinball 2000 and try to turn things around or um, not be part of it and then just leave, you know, because there really wasn't going to be much else, you know, to do. I mean, so when somebody says like, hey, do you want to work on Pinball 2000, um, it's, it's, Basically, if the answer is no, then you know you probably need to find something else to do <laughs> because I, there wasn't much future in, in anything else. The company didn't really want to uh, uh, didn't really want to, to uh, spend any more time with conventional pinball. That being, you know, like games like Monster Bash or you know whatever the stuff I had worked on previously. So what uh, what type of programming or design did you do for uh, Pinball 2000? Uh, 
Pinball 2000, I was uh, lead programmer on uh, Revenge for Mars. And, again, like, lead programmer is, uh, you know, to me, like, designing a structure uh, um, and, uh, you know, doing uh, rules. And, again, uh, you know, I hesitate to say that, uh, uh, you know, it's not like... Uh, you know, the, as a programmer, like, I'm totally responsible for rules and stuff. Actually, uh, Pinball 2000 was a big cast of a lot of people. I mean, it, it, everybody in the department worked on Pinball 2000 in some form or fashion. Um, Tom Uban was, uh, had been developing the, uh, the operating system for Pinball 2000, uh, for some time previous to that. And, uh, uh, I was uh, going to be a uh, lead programmer on Revenge from Mars, um, and uh, Dwight Sullivan and Keith Johnson uh, were added to the project. Um, I mean, Football 2000 was, uh, uh, well, mostly what I call a get-it-done project. Um, it was kind of like... Uh, uh, management just really wanted to see the thing. It's like, all right, hurry up and get it done and get it out there because uh, the technology, I think, really drove what that product was. And, you know, management just, I think, sort of wanted to know as soon as possible whether the technology was going to be viable. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, I hated Revenge from Mars when I was working on it and, and I hated it when it came out because I just didn't feel like that that it was up to um, you know some other things I had worked on and uh, I had played one uh, within the last year and I uh, I don't know I, I, I like the game I think at this point it's, uh, I think it turned out uh, pretty well I just get so caught up in, in having to get it done and having to get it done that that um, it's almost like you can't enjoy things along the way, and it's important to. Um, I didn't have a lot of time off between uh, Monster Bash and, and Revenge either. I think I had um, I had like four days. I had Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I remember specifically. It, it sounds weird that like oh you had you know like a Saturday or a Sunday off. Some people shake their heads and say, oh what do you mean? <laughs> Don't you get those days off? Not. Not if you want to do a good job and be happy with you know what you what you what you're done with. So. Well, I, I think Revenge from Mars is a, a great product. I mean, I I think as far as a pinball game goes, it's a really good. I think it's a good strong game, and for a first effort on that platform, I think you guys did an incredible job. Um, I think that. Uh, yeah, for a first effort, I think uh, it, it turned out pretty well. Again, I, I when I was working on it, I just couldn't be... I, I mean, I was so burned out, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't see where there was fun in the game. And, um, you know, after working on so many games that were, I felt, you know, more entertaining as far as humor goes, I looked at Revenge for Mars and I'm like, well, I don't know about this game. And, uh, the, uh, the effort that went into it was, 
was great, that's for sure. And um, a lot of people just wanted to, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, um, but mostly management wanted to see it done and out and see, you know, what it would do. Uh, I can't say I had a lot of fun working on Revenge for Mars, mostly because of the of the pressure and the sacrifice that went into working on that game. But that's why Williams sent you to Disney World, right? Yeah, I didn't go on that trip. <laughs> Tell me about that fiasco. Yeah, no, I still have my ticket upstairs. I felt like, you know, if somebody wants to send me on a trip, send me on a trip for some good accomplishment. I mean, maybe actually just like bringing that product to market was a good accomplishment. And maybe that's how I should have looked at it. But I looked at it like, hey, you know what? I've been to I've been to Disney a bunch of times, okay, and and it's a very special place for me. And I didn't want it to be about like, oh yeah, I remember I came here when you know we basically like tried this thing and management wasn't happy with it, so you know they just decided to to get rid of us all. I mean, that's for them to decide. I don't really care, but I I I look at it differently now. I, I look at it and I probably should have gone and should have just you know, spent the time and, and enjoyed it with, with people, you know, who I had a lot of fun working with uh, over the years. Now, did you feel that management had it in for pinball the whole time? Um, I don't think so. I Maybe Neil did. I mean, because Neil, uh, he answers to a higher authority. Um, Ken, I think... Uh, and, and this is where I think, like, you know, Ken and Larry, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for both of those guys because um, as as people who were my superiors, um, they came up, you know, like through the trenches and they, they paid their dues uh, working on projects. I mean, they both started as engineers. And so at, through that process, I think, uh, you know, they, they knew a lot of, of what, you know, we were going through when we were working on this stuff. It's like, hey, you know, we, we put all this time and effort into it, and then, like, you know, management's not happy. Like, I don't think, I think Neil bitched about stuff more than Ken did just because, I mean, Ken, Ken's been through the cycle, you know, and, and he, he kind of, I think, knows what it's like. Um, so, I'm not really sure. What was the the parking lot incident with Neil? What was that all about? Yeah, I mentioned it in that uh in that uh in that video um there were a lot of well, my radar kind of goes up when, you know, certain people start saying certain things and you know, it's like there were some comments being made about you know, the plug getting pulled and whatever and I well, we we kept long odd hours at, at Williams and I think I was heading out for dinner or something and Neil was leaving for the day and I saw him in the parking lot and so I, we joked around a little bit not too much but um, you know I, I, I just sort of you know said hey you know who pulled the plug on us you know and, and he uh, I mean it was I, I was just like sort of fishing and, and he um, you know just sort of told me like, hey, you know, sorry, um, but uh, I think we sold the, 
I think it was like around 7,200 of Revenge for Mars and then um, 5,000 or whatever of Star Wars Episode One, both Pinball 2000 games. And, uh, you know, he, he you know, was just kind of like, yeah, I, I want to sort of cut my losses while I can. And, and uh, you know, he just didn't... Uh, he saw that trend again, you know, it's like, okay, you know, the first game comes out and the technology carries it, maybe it's a better game, uh, who knows, uh, that's a matter of opinion, but, uh, uh, you know, the next game, which is a, a which is a, a license and a, and a, and a pretty damn good one, um, you know, it, it sells less and you're thinking, well, like, oh, okay, you know, here we go again, and I think he probably did the right thing, uh, you know, to just say, hey, you know, as part of uh, WMS uh, public company, this is not uh, how we want to, uh, uh, you know, spend our, our resources. We don't want to. We don't want to spend time or money on this anymore because it's, you know, again, like this negative growth thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I just guessed because I, you know, I had heard people, certain people, say certain things. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't like it was a big mystery because, uh, I mean, I've said this before, when, when, when you start going into the project knowing, like, okay, this is our last shot at pinball, uh, at Williams, and do you want to be part of it or, or no? And, you know, going in, it's like, all right, I'm going to work on this project, and it's, it's, if it goes down, I'm going down with the ship. I mean, that's what happens. So um, it really is just, uh, I mean, there are other problems. I don't think there's uh, any product short of a gambling product that you're going to put out that's got, like, flippers and a steel ball and targets and whatever else on it that uh, is going to get people to, you know, come out of their houses and go into bars to, to play on a regular basis, you know, to the point where, Operators are going to get excited about what the game earns. Um, it's just they're they're just way too many forms of, of of alternative entertainment today that that more accessible, more entertaining. Uh, I don't know. Would you disagree? Uh, well, I, I think they didn't give the platform long enough. I mean. Two games on that platform, I, I don't think it did ju- justice to it. I, I mean, I, fine, you're gonna pull the, if you, if you're destined to pull the plug, you know, there was also like, I mean, they raised the price of Star Wars. They had all these European orders. Uh, the dollar at the time was very, very strong. So when you raise a retail price on the US dollar level, and it dramatically increases the price, you know, to your European market, I, you, you know, they, they got a lot of orders, almost like they were, we're trying to force it to be canceled to some degree. I mean, that would be one perception of of how it looked. Kind of like you know they like they put this carrot on a stick, and you guys took the carrot, you ate the carrot, and you gave them back a, a you know a good return on the carrot, and they still weren't happy. To me, it was you know I, I don't know you know and and just based on what Gary Stern has done with pinball. I mean, not that, you know, he's getting filthy rich on it or anything, but, you know, it just seems like it was premature. It may have been. I mean, I think with any new technology, you have to give it time. But I think, you know, um, again, I think the big issue was 
um, uh, you know, just the trend. I mean, here's another scenario, and I don't think that Williams closes uh, so soon under this scenario. And the scenario is, Revenge for Mars sells 7,200 games. Star Wars, instead of selling 5,000, let's say it sells 10,000. Okay? Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're Neil or you're anybody else, okay, what do you do? You're like, hey, let's do another game. Right? Right. Don't you? But if you go, okay, 7,200, now 5,000, you're like, you know what? We're done. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> See you later. Okay. The movie, people can argue whatever they want about how that movie was. I mean, I personally didn't like it. Uh, but Star Wars is a kind of license that if there hadn't already been so many games done, uh, and maybe it were a little bit more... Um, you know, if, if, if the Star Wars movies were just coming out now, maybe. Um, I'm sure Gary would have picked up Star Wars if Williams didn't. Um, it's just a kind of license that, 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 that is very desirable because there's already a history of it. You already have all of these fans. You have this huge fan base, and you have this recognizable thing. And, and as far as getting people to come up to the game and say, hey, I know what this is. It's Star Wars. Um, that's exactly what you want. I don't see how the license hurt it, I guess, is what I'm saying. Other than that, you know, the movie was probably, uh, you know, overhyped. I mean, with new technology, people are going to have uh, different ways of, of doing uh, things or different ideas about what to do with, with the technology. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we went one direction, and uh, we were still, to, to the point you're saying where, hey, you know, management didn't give it enough time. That's probably to some extent true because um, uh, with new technology or like that, you, you need time uh, or you need some, some, some leeway to be able to try and fail uh, or, or, or experiment and say, oh, well, you know, maybe we won't do that again or, hey, this looks promising. Let's go down this path. Um, so... I kind of agree. Um, if you give uh, that license to, you know, I, I mean, this is with any pinball machine, not just Pinball 2000. Um, if you give the license to 10 different guys, they're going to come up with 10 different games, you know, 10 different ways to do stuff. Um, and, and again, the, 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 the problem with licenses is that uh, somebody else is dictating to you what is sort of, you know, what, what, what your game is, is more or less going to be. You know, I mean, Star Wars, well, what's going to be in the Star Wars game? Well, all of the stuff that was in the Star Wars game. You know, you have Darth Maul and you have the, you know, you have all that stuff. Um, and, and whereas, uh, you know, Revenge for Mars, we were sort of free to, to do, uh, invent new things. Well, what about Wizard Blocks? You, you, you've obviously seen Wizard Blocks. What was your feeling on that game? Um, I didn't really see Wizard Blocks all that much. I mean, everybody, you know, makes Wizard Blocks out to be like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this is, this was, well, you know, gonna be what was gonna do it. Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, it's, it's, I would have certainly liked to have seen more, uh, games, including Wizard Blocks, um, you know, come to, to fruition. Um, because everybody has different ideas as to what the Pinball 2000 um, should be. And, you know, Pat, I'm sure, had different ideas 
and uh, you know, it's just a shame to not see the, some of those uh, come to light. They just gave it a little bit more time. You know, we would have, you know, you you could have made a better judgment call. You know, especially based on what happened to Pinball after Williams closed. You know, it kind of like, you know, you know, it, it definitely went on an upswing. Um. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I don't know if it went on an upswing right away. Um, I mean, because certainly Williams goes away, and then you have Gary. Okay, Gary's last man standing. Um, but I mean, how many games did he really do? I mean, in the absence of Williams, uh, the uh, you know the overall uh, production of games was probably less. I would have to think. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I really, I, I mean, after after uh, Williams closed their pinball division, I went over to uh, uh, to uh, the Midway uh, to work on video games, and uh, I, I really didn't pay much attention to pinball. Quite honestly, I, I stopped playing, uh, I stopped competing, uh, and uh, I was pretty much out of touch with it for uh, about three years. So I, I'm not totally sure. Well, in those three years, I mean, Gary put out some games that I, I would say are definitely not his best. But it also took that Riker Extreme and Sharky Shootout. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that what what took it to get it rolling is, you know, I think there was like this healing process for you know a lot of the Williams people were they were like you and they didn't really want anything to do with pinball. But then a few years had passed and. And I think, you know, somebody said, hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you come over to Stern and, and do some work? And once that snowball got turning, you know, things really turned around. And, I mean, he's been producing some some pretty darn good games. Well, I think um, I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, I, I think the value that that Williams had and the value that Stern has today um, is is the employees? Um, it's, it's the people who do the work, who do right. uh, the work on the games. I mean, because um, you know, if we're all on a plane going to a show and we get wiped out, I mean, what does anybody have? <laughs> I mean, you're gonna you how are you gonna scramble to get all the stuff done? You know, we all really care about what we do, and I think um, uh, you know a lot of it has to do with the people. You know, you, you you have people with a lot of experience who who love what they do, and they're probably going to do pretty good work. Um, the downside to that is you know, we're all getting older. I mean, I'm in my 40s now, and uh, a lot of people are a lot older than I am. Um, some people are going to be retiring soon. Uh, it uh, it makes me wonder. You know, who's, you have to pass the torch. Uh, you know, that's just how life works. And, uh, um, you know, I think some of the, the, uh, pinball has always had its ups and downs. Um, I know for me, I needed a break from it because I had so much work piled on me. And in, in, I mean, I look at all of the stuff that I did in, in the less than five years that I was at, at Williams and, and the year and a half I was at, Data East, and I, I never thought all of that work would be possible. Um, and uh, sometimes you get burnt out and you need a break. 
you also, I think, need a break to, you know, just kind of recharge and come up with some fresh ideas. Um, you know, we all sort of, um, we all sort of, as far as pinball design goes, I think we know what we know, and um, there's such uh, time constraints on projects that that people end up uh, doing things that, that they know will work, even if they might be things that, like, well, yeah, you know, this game maybe did this or that game maybe did that. Um, because, again, you always have to put your, your best foot forward. And if you have the extra time on a project, then, uh, you know, you can experiment a little bit and try some different things. All right, Lemon. Well, I guess we're going to close it. This is, uh, you know, not to take this interview too far. This would be a, a good closing point because now, um, you know, we're uh, you're done with the Williams and the Data East era. And you're still kind of writing your history with uh, with Stern, right? Sure. Well, you know, are you okay with closing here? Yeah. Is there anything that I left out that you'd like to add? Uh, I'm sure after I listen to this, you know, a couple of times, I I'll, I'll think of some things. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, um, you know, the only thing I suppose I'd like to say. Uh, at the end of all of it is, is you know, it's been a lot of fun, you know, along the way. Um, it's a lot of work along the way, but um, to be able to look back on it and 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 uh, and realize that you know how much fun it's been. Also, it's 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 a great uh, gift to be able to uh, uh, make a living at something you really enjoy doing. I mean, how does the future for pinball look in your eye? I think that uh, pinball, in some form or fashion, will probably always be around. Uh, I think that it will continue to have its ups and downs. Um, The one thing that concerns me right now is that you know, we're doing games that, that really aren't all that different, uh, from the games that, that, that we just talked about. I mean, uh, games that, that have been out for 10 or 15 years. You know, we're, we're, it's like we're aspiring to do games that are as good as those games today. You know, back when they were 15 years ago. Um, I, I keep, Hoping for, not hoping, I, I keep, uh, well, yeah, I guess hoping that uh, pinball can be, uh, you know, sort of a, a viable form of entertainment that, that you know, excites people again. Um, I think that's only going to be the case in, under a couple of scenarios if we keep sort of down the path we're on, and that's, you know, one is we could we could certainly get into markets don't have pinball right now. Uh, I mean, pinball is pretty fun to people who haven't really experienced it before. Um, that's one way. The other way is to look at where we are now and see what's working and what's not working. And again, I think um, you know, I, I think our games need to be more uh, random and be more um, like they were back in the days when everybody thought they were uh, gambling machines. Um, I just think that you know we've designed it way too. We've designed all the luck out of the games, and so you know 
Yeah, you mean so the bad players do really bad and the good players do really good? Sure. I, I you know, uh, it's uh, um, uh, it's very intimidating playing pinball. Uh, if you just go out and you want to play and you go, oh, this game looks interesting, and you play and, and there are things like rules that you have to understand. I mean, I think the best uh, things uh, that there are in pinball machines are, you know, the mechanics. Uh, like, uh, you know, like, oh, say the castle in Medieval Madness being a perfect example. Um, you could play out that whole rule uh, w- w- without any lights on the play field. Um, and understand it. It's like, hey, I'm blowing up the castle. You get it. You don't have to look at like, oh, I shot that ramp three times and it lit up that light over there and then if I shoot that light and then, you know, go down this lane and do this and do that and then I get this multi-ball or whatever. Um, you know, we could be doing a lot more to make our games uh, simpler. But it's a fine line because you don't want to make the game so simple that uh, you, you lose even even more of the people who who are still playing your games now. Um, it's uh, it's it's a little. Uh, I mean, I, I've I've watched uh, people you know disappear over the years playing games, and um, you know again, it's it's just more forms of entertainment competing for entertainment dollars and. Um, I don't want to say pinball's run its course. I don't think it has, uh, but I, I think that you know we could do we could do more to make the games you know more appealing to average people. All right, I'd like to thank Lyman Sheets for coming on Topcast tonight. I really do appreciate his time. It was a great honor to have Lyman on here, and I really do appreciate all his stories. And I hope you all come back and hear us again soon on Topcast.